It's whenever you're listening. It could be any time of night. But if you are listening, it can mean only one thing. It's time for the Pop Culture Climate with me, your host, Gary. And as always, my co-host, Daryl. Daryl, what's happening? Hello. What's the crack? Hello, Gary. How are you, mate? How are you? I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. It's, uh, it's, it's, well, I won't say when it was, when the, the time is, because that will ruin the mystique of, <laughs> of the, the producing any time. But yeah, I'm feeling good, mate. Feeling good. Feeling full of energy. Full of beans. Good, good. Uh, and I have to tell you something. It's a, What's that? So I regret you inform you. We're having a new format a new. change to the podcast. Oh, really? What, another one? Yes, we're no longer pop culture climate. We're no longer yeah, pop, pop culture, culture life hack. Oh, a life hacks channel. Oh, really? In, in my like day, bodge yeah. jobs. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was going to say, in my day, we called them bodge jobs. <laughs> but yeah, exactly. well, that's what we are now. All bodge jobs, all the time. Exactly. We used to record the show live for the radio, but unfortunately, due to the lockdown and all the other crazy restrictions, we're having to do this as a home uh, version of the show, and it does mean a few. Life hacks, bodge jobs have been thrown in as me and Dale both have Zoom recorders to capture the audio sitting on top of camera tripods as they're attached to our, our laptops. And I'm actually recording this in a shed. Can you believe it or not? Nice. That's, that's the most bodge of bodge jobs that is. Exactly. A podcast studio set up. Oh, and, and for those, obviously, that can't see it, which is everybody but me, um, I also, to, to avoid my Zoom falling off of the tripod, because it's attached to the laptop, I have tied an old pair of headphones around it to stop it moving. I mean, I went full-on life hack. Bodge shop. Oh, nice. So this is now not a podcast, it's a bodgecast. Hey! <laughs> hey, I like it, I like it. So look, Daryl, <laughs> even if it is a bodgecast, even if the format has unfortunately had to change somewhat, there's one thing I don't want to change, and that's starting this podcast by asking you, how you been? What have you been up to? I've uh, been bodging, a lot of bodges. <laughs> a, lot, a lot of bodges. A lot of lockdown life hacks. <laughs> yeah, exactly, like getting out of bed before 10 o'clock. And, well, um, now that's not a life hack. That's an achievement, especially when you don't have kids. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yes, this is a... Uh, oh, to go back to work, you never thought you'd miss work, would you? But I'm kind of missing work. Well, I've been going through that. Because I've got the kids, so I became the, the, the stay-at-home parent. And within about a month of doing it, I thought, you know what? I'd much rather be out at work. It's actually, it's, it's, it's something about not being able to go out and being in the same four walls, but also not earning any money for it. <laughs> it kind of starts to get to you after a while. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it definitely, it's definitely yeah, gotten exactly. to me. I, I lost my marbles a long yeah. time ago. Yeah, you're now all stay-at-home mums, but you haven't got any kids. Like, imagine trying <laughs> yeah. to do this. Exactly. Now imagine trying to be quarantined and you're not allowed to go out other than to the supermarket, but you've also got a four-year-old or two-year-old or a four-month-old crying all the time. That's what you mean. Just be pleased at quarantine. You mean? I no don't have to it. imagine it. That's been my life. <laughs> That's been my life I'm last. Talking about, I'm, t- I'm talking to you. Yeah. I'm talking to you, the audience at home. I'm talking about the 20-year-olds and the 18-year-olds all going flipping mental because they want to go up the pub. Yeah, yeah, like I said, and look, we ain't even out of the lockdown yet, and already people are just, they've given up on it. 
You know, I, I live next to a service station, and for me, that's a good barometer. For the first couple of weeks, there was hardly any cars there. Now, it looks like any other day. Yeah. So many people yeah, well, around. Uh, yesterday, I went to the supermarket yesterday, and there were so many people walking about. I was just like, oh, come on. But it was yeah, everyone's, so everyone's given up. You know, that, that's what it is. It's, it's only, and, and that was the message beforehand, wasn't it? Don't go into lockdown too quick because it's harder than you think. And that's what we're finding out. But there has been some benefits to lockdown, like more time to watch new shows. So, Daryl, what have you been watching? Well, unlike you, I've been watching some new stuff. Yeah, I've been watching the old classics like LA Confidential. And you know what? I just don't get tired of talking about good classic films and good classic shows like LA Confidential. Have you been watching anything that could be considered a classic? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> we haven't got time for classics. That's not what we're about. Are we not about That's that? That's what the climate's all about, mate. No, oh, we're about no. that. We're about new, mate. Always going forward, always going new. I've been watching all these new shows. Didn't want to watch half of them. I just knew we needed content, so I watched them because I had something to say on the podcast. I was doing this for the listeners, Gary. Unlike you, who seems to be doing... It all for himself, selfish, selfish man. <laughs> it's very hard to argue with that point. I mean, I watched things with no intention of ever talking about them on the show. Um, but thankfully for our listeners, we've got you out there forging his way through the sea of content and the jungle of content to find us some absolute gems. And I hear you fell in love with the Ghost in the Shell, uh, the new anime. You you know I didn't. You know I didn't like it. Done, <laughs> I feel like it's your first bit for 13 times. I have said these exact lines 18 times now, so it's going to sound really stale and unfresh. So here we go. go Gary, it. it's terrible. Is it the really? Is, the animation is really poor and cheap looking. This um, is coming as a big I'm shock reading. to me. It's coming yeah, as a big, big shock. I've got, to, I've got to zoom in. I can't read the rest of what's written here. Hang on. <laughs> I thought um, you'd have committed it to memory by now. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so terrible, I couldn't make it 10 minutes in. The major looks like anime Garakuri Karakami, which is a creepy mask that some cosplayers wear, most who I swear are men. There you go. Got through it. Thanks a lot. We just can't get past that part. So in case anybody listening didn't catch this, we've been having a few technical issues with our, our bodge job at home bodge casting. And uh, it meant that Daryl has done this intro talking about this Ghost of the Shell remake that he does not like and he really doesn't like about... 264,000 times now. Um, and we just we had to get past that bit so we could talk about something maybe you do like, Daryl. And because it's terrible, and because I don't want us to, to lose any more time on it, I think we're not going to go into what makes it terrible. It just is terrible. Tell us something good you've been watching. Right, um, Soul Leviathan? Levenant? Soul Levenant. I'll get Soul, it right. I've oh. said this five times as well. I've never got it right. Soul Levenant. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was, I was, after watching Ghost in the Shell and getting 10 minutes in and turning it off and going nope and noping out of it I was like what else is there and I was like Soul Lebanon is four minutes long what's a four minute long thing doing on Netflix what's all this about so I turned it on watched it it was complete nonsense absolute complete and utter nonsense you know like a music video basically nonsense four minutes long. yeah yeah exactly and I was like what, what, what I didn't understand why it was there what it was about or anything I was like so I looked it up on the internet and basically it's a test 
to show off 4K 2D hand-drawn animation. Oh, that's interesting. That, that is like legitimately interesting. Not yeah, but I didn't necessarily what you were expecting, but it would. I I I must admit, although you have already told me about this, it's one of the things I'm quite keen to check out because I quite like vibrant colours and and certainly if it's done with animation. So to see it in 4K would be lovely, and I'm assuming I can do that, Daryl. Oh, well, uh, unless you've got 4K TV that's about 60 inches wide, no. No, I was being glib. <laughs> You're being glib, oh, man. Right. You're being glib. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, so it was interesting, but unless you've got a 4K TV, it's not really worth watching because you're going to go, well, what was that? That's four minutes of like some giant thing growing. Anyway, so there was that. Um, something good on Apple TV+, Plus, which is not a line you say a lot. No, no, there's not an awful lot on Apple TV+. Plus. No, there's not. And uh, But this is one good thing. It's the Beastie Boys story. All right. As in the band, a, the Beastie Boys. Yeah, the Beastie, yeah. Beastie Boys, the band. This is a live documentary, which means really it's just the two remaining members, Ad Brock and Mike Diamond, on stage standing behind a giant screen that's showing a uh, PowerPoint presentation, basically. Okay. It's like, a, <laughs> it's like a TED Talk, but the talk they're talking about is about the history of the band. Okay, so, well, I mean, that sounds interesting to me. They, they've got a colourful past. That's for sure. Yeah, if I know anything about the Beastie Boys, so you know, and, and how many of those kind of like you see it on YouTube a lot, like the wrestler shoot videos and things like, and that's all they're doing. It's just they're telling stories, you know, like, and, yeah. and if the stories are told well enough, yeah, a PowerPoint presentation's fine. I don't need to see that many visuals. Yeah, exactly. Well, this is really interesting because they obviously grew up in New York in the eighties, where New York was one of the worst places to live in the whole entire, you know, world. It was a terrible, terrible place to live. Violent, run down. It was going bankrupt. The sea was just a mess. And they grew um, up listening to hip hop and becoming big hip hop fans. So that was like, you know, they were the first sort of white boys to sort of listen to become rappers. So that was yeah. all, that's all very interesting. Also, their third member, uh, Adam MCA York, just died in 2012 of cancer, unfortunately. Yeah. So this is sort of a train of paying tribute to him as well, and he's and all him, you know. So there's that. I would say if you like yeah. it, there's a book called The Beastie Book that's also tells a similar story. I mean, this show is basically them repurposing the Beastie Book for a live show. Um, oh right. There's an audible version of it, which is very good, which is read by them and has loads of guest stars reading bits and different pieces. So I'd really suggest that it's a really good book, really really interesting, especially for all the eighties hip hop stuff. Oh, I'm definitely going to check it out for sure. And, and as you said, because if I will be in dyslexic, we'll go with the audio book. But the fact that they're reading it themselves it is a big plus for me. And it helped kind of like, you know, set the scene better for you than somebody else telling their story. Um, so that's a big plus. Okay. And that's on Apple TV, is it? Yes, yeah, on Apple TV. Plus. Brilliant. Plus. Yeah, we must remember the plus. <laughs> Disney Hello, plus. There's no Apple TV plus. You know, anyway, so it doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, <laughs> also on Netflix. Another teen sitcom drama sort of thing, which I always end up watching. I do not know why. I'm like, <laughs> I, was, I was thinking about this yesterday. I see why. Why is it that that we would call these teen angst dramas? I suppose, and yet I don't know anybody that watches more of them than you. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's kind of my. I just I know it's just one of those things I like. Yeah, each to I mean, their own. I grew up. 
it's because I grew up like watching a lot of indie cinema and a lot of indie cinema is just like oh when I was a kid I was bullied <laughs> well look the thing like, the thing is they say I mean, each yeah. each to their own and, and, and I know I always say this to people and they say look the fact is is there's somebody out there willing to have sex with me so there's no accounting for taste you know no accounting for it you don't know what you're going to like even if to everybody else it looks like a pile of crap <laughs> speak for yourself <laughs> yeah. I, thought, I thought I would I thought I'd be self-deprecating because I normally throw that at you I thought oh, I know how I'll throw him off his guard here we're bodgecasting this I'll be yeah, self-deprecating I was trying to take a cocodamol when I was just had it in my mouth I was about to swallow it you said it and then he spat it all over the place and he choked on a cocodamol imagine that ch- listening to a podcast and one of the coasts chokes to death on a painkiller <laughs> That would, that would, so anyway, oh, I think that would get us some ratings. That's for sure. Yeah, exactly right. Let me let me sort of ramp up my energy a little bit. Hang on. Yeah, yeah. Come on, come on. Right. So, never have I ever. It's on Netflix. It's a high school high school set sitcom by Mindy Kaling. Who, if you know, she used to be in the Office. She's in the Mindy Kaling show. Gary, you know, she uh, yeah, yeah. I, I think I do. I think I right, do. Okay. Yeah, but I can't so, picture her at the moment. But uh, by the time this goes out, I know exactly who she is. Yes, yeah. So this is our first show for Netflix. In the lead, uh, let me get this right, My Trey E. My Trey E. Yeah. I'm not going to say her last name because I'll just ruin that as well. I only can find pronunciations <laughs> for her first name. I was like, I'm not even going to try that second name. <laughs> no, let's not insult her. No, she's, a tra- she's not a trained actor at all. She's from Canada, in fact. <laughs> I love the way you put those two things together. She's not a trained actor. She's even from Canada. I mean, like, well, yeah, exactly. Not, that like, should Canada's instantly discount her for being a trained actor. Well, if you're a trained actor, you knew she'd live in LA. That's what I'm trying to say. Oh, right. you knew she'd near the bit. You knew she'd in LA or New York if you're a young person trying to be an actor. You wouldn't be yeah. living in Canada, would you? There's not a lot of acting jobs in Canada. I mean, Canada, you have to make half their programming in Canada to show it on TV, but still not uh, that much going on for an actor. I think it, I isn't to... a lot of the DC stuff filmed in, in Canada, in, in uh, Toronto? Vancouver. Oh, Vancouver. Sorry, it is Vancouver, isn't it? Vancouver. Yeah, yeah exactly. So there, there is some stuff going on yeah. there, but I get what you mean. You know, it, okay. Can I, this, this is my little favourite anecdote about something, about yeah, uh, the show Suits. Suits. You know the show, yeah, Suits. You know it's supposed to be in New York, but it's obviously... I was going to say, how can anybody in Britain not now know the show Suits? It happens to star one of our princesses. Or is she a princess? I think she's just a a duchess, isn't she? She's not anything now. She's given up the... Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, she's just... Oh yeah. yeah, Megan Windsor, Megan. I suppose now, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, well, I don't know if she's in the Windsor. Yeah, so there's a bit of it where one of the people uh, is supposed to be set in New York, but it's obviously Vancouver. Yeah, and a bit where one of them's outside, and someone comes up to him and they go, "You followed me all the way to Vancouver," and I was like, "No, they didn't. <laughs> no, they didn't. <laughs> they just stopped pretending they were in New York." <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're just standing outside the building you film in. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Oh, anyway, so back to the back to the show, right? So, uh, my trainee, she um, she's not a trained actor. She joined a casting call. They had a casting call, and there was fifteen thousand other applicants, and she won. Fifteen thousand. Yeah, fifteen thousand applicants wow. for this part, and she won it. And I tell you what, she's very good. She is an uncut gem. You know, when we see someone, you go. Because I looked her up, I was like, oh, she's very good. She's, you mean, she's got a lot of charisma about her. She's very good in the part. I was like, so she so I looked her up, and it was like, this is her first major acting role. I was like, no, this is crazy. How could this be her first acting, ever acting role? She's such a natural on the screen. 
I must admit, I haven't seen the show, but I have watched the trailer for it. And if you hadn't have told me she'd been trained, I wouldn't know. You know, she seems very much the perfect fit for for, for what I saw in the role, at least. Yeah. Now, this show, there's a thing on Netflix, and I said I sent you a text about this the other day, about having dead fathers. I do not understand. It seems to be now a trope that goes out on Netflix of dead dads. Well, it's an anime trope to, to not have the parents in it. So, And tropes are are a kind of thing across all, all forms of, of film and TV. But it's an interesting one. I think you've you've stumbled across there. So you're saying that obviously this show has got that as well, her, her dad's passed away. Yeah, so these are the shows where dads have passed away that are on Netflix. There are also YA shows, yeah? Stranger yeah. Things. Yes. You know, the kid who got, went into the uh, Upside Down, their dad's dead. Um, Lock and Key. No, he's, no, he's not. No, he's not. He's oh, run no, away. He's not dead, is he? He's no. run away. I was wrong about that one then. They haven't yeah. got a dad, though. <laughs> yeah, but there's, no, there's, there's, there's an absent <laughs> father figure, is what we're saying. Yeah, yeah, I get, I'll, I'll let you up that one. I'll let you have that one, Cal. <laughs> oh, you, you, suggested, you suggested Stranger Things, and I said to you at the time, no, no, you're wrong. No, that didn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not having this revisionist history. Not on this show. <laughs> not on a show that we've had to record several times over. No, there's yeah, no revision in this show. <laughs> you got Lock and Key. Yeah. Which is the whole point of the whole point of the plot revolves around the fact that dad is dead. Yeah. But then that was a comic book first, and that comic book came out like in 2011. So that's been a long time coming. So uh, not okay with this, which is we, we reviewed that one before, and her dad's dead in that. And that was also a comic book that okay. happened a long time ago. So, you know what I mean? Never have I ever, never have I ever the show we're talking about as well. Yeah. Never have I ever, the, one of the plot points about her dad being dead and uh, not getting along with her mum is so similar to the plot point of no I'm not okay with this I was like those you you must have read that comic book maybe at some time or so I've internalised it somewhere because well it's similar to the you... um the, the the comedy thing isn't it the joke theft where where they say that it's the out isn't it I think Louis C.K. gave it to uh, Dane Cook where Dane Cook has essentially stolen yeah. one of Louis C.K.'s bits and he said to him look if you're not going to admit to stealing it, I'll give you an out. You heard the joke once, forgot you'd heard it, thought about it and thought it was an original thought. You didn't realise you'd been influenced by it. So is that kind of what you feel like has happened here, is that they're all kind of starting to get... Or, or maybe if you just do a TV program about your father dying and you're in a teenager, you're not going to get on with your mum as it is. You know, get teenage girls do not get on with their mum most of the time. There's no. a lot of arguing. So... I mean, maybe it's just if you've got a dead father and you're a teenage girl, you're going to argue with your mum like this. So it's not really copy, maybe, you know what I mean? But it's very similar. Those, the two storylines, how they work, of shows are very similar. Obviously, this girl's got no superpowers, unlike um, I'm not okay with this. Yeah. Well, and also, I'm not okay with this. I have never have I ever. Never have I ever. I cannot remember the name of it because I, I want to keep calling it I have never instead of never have I ever. It's like, and I'm have not you, okay have with you not this, played so the game like, then, Daryl? Never have I ever? Yeah. But, still, I, but I did want to add one in quickly. That I think, yeah. unless I didn't hear you, maybe you've missed just off the top of my dome right. here. Umbrella Academy. The, yeah, the whole, oh yeah, Umbrella Academy. The whole show is built around the fact that the dad's dead. <laughs> they all have to come back oh, yeah. home and find out what happened. You know, like to, to their dead dad. So, like, so. Oh yeah, it's another one. Yeah, exactly. 
I think you might have stumbled onto something here, Daryl. I think there's a, there's a conspiracy where Netflix is trying to normalise no male figure in your life uh, and eventually we're going to become children of women only. I think, I think that's where but we're headed, Daryl. But the problem with that is that but Lock and Key, Umbrella Academy and uh, I'm Not OK With This are all comic books first that came about, you know, so they, they all happen in three separate different comic books. It just so happens those three... See, those three different comic books got bought and have got changed into TV series. Also, October Faction. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, October Faction. The, the Father's Dead. That's where they've come back to the house for about oh, the yeah. old same town. So, is it, which is a lot like Lock and Key, and it's a lot like Umbrella, Umbrella Academy. What is going on on Netflix? It's, it's also, that's, different. A, that's also that's also a comic book as well. That's true. That's true. And I think um, <laughs> I'm going to go. I'm going to go one step further here. Altered Carbon. His dad is dead. <laughs> I think he killed his own dad, so maybe that one doesn't count as much, but still. <laughs> it's everywhere, Daryl. We can't get away from it. No matter what I think about now, everybody's dad is dead. It's definitely... I think we stumbled across a conspiracy. <laughs> the Netflix dead dad conspiracy. It's right, definitely... Okay, so, there's something going uh, on me, there. Yeah, yeah. Let me get some of my thoughts down. I really need some caffeine. I have not had any caffeine and my mouth is swirling around. Anyway, so <coughs> I said this is a, 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 bit, a bit of a mix. It's, have you ever watched uh, Fresh Off the Boat? Uh, I have not, no. Well, that's a comedy about, it's an ABC comedy about an immigrant family uh, from Taiwan, three boys and mum and dad. And, you know, uh, immigrant, like Asian parenting is very strong, isn't it? You always have to... Well, of course, I, I, well, we, my partner is Chinese. Obviously, both her parents are Chinese. Exactly. Uh, and if there's one thing I know is that their parenting style um, is not necessarily the same as what you'd experience within Western. But, you know, it's, it, when everything's different, it all starts to look the same anyway, doesn't it? We were watching um, uh, Britain's Got Talent yesterday and they had a uh, kids' choir and someone said... Oh, look, there's an Asian girl playing a cello. Cello's <laughs> <laughs> quite funny. You don't, see, you don't see that. You don't see that every day, do you? <laughs> no, you don't. And my, uh, my partner, uh, I remember when I, when I, I met, we were sort of talking to each other and I said to her, I've got no musical ability. I said, I can't even play an instrument. I was like, can you play an instrument? She's like, yeah, I can play piano. I was taught piano when I was a kid. I was like, well, that was, uh, I couldn't see that coming at all. So, so of course exactly yeah so you so say you've got a bit of that in there so like the immigrant experience in america yeah and actually um for those that didn't didn't listen to our last show one new thing i did watch uh or certainly newish was kim's convenience which sounds quite similar it's a korean family and they're in canada funnily enough uh a reference to the the last show that we just mentioned but uh yeah so so and one of the would it be quite similar to that then one of the no, because this is more like an uh, Asian girl at high school. Oh, right, so, okay. Yeah. But also, but also, there's no bullies in this high school, which I was really, I really liked. I mean, she's not a popular girl. She's an Indian nerd, so... Are we still talking about Never Have I Ever? Yeah. Oh, right. Yeah, Indian nerd <laughs> so, girl. For, for some reason, I thought we'd moved on to a new show. I was like, hang Why? on a second. Why? I don't know, because didn't you mention... Oh, it's because you started talking about Fresh Off The Boat. You yeah, completely, it's like, it's, completely threw me. Yeah, it's got a bit of a Fresh Off The Boat on it. It's got a bit of the... Uh, I'm not okay with this, as I said. Very yeah. sort of similar, nerdy girl in high school sort of thing. Dead dad. 
And uh, what's the other one? Oh, Booksmart. If you've seen Booksmart, which I I think I've reviewed the thought about on the show once, I said I'm it was all right. This is. I think this got a bit of that feeling to it, a little bit of that girls do talk about sex and they do, you know what I mean? They're not pure as the driven snow. Girls are, teenage girls are just as bad as teenage boys, sort of thing. In this day and age, for sure, for sure. Yeah, in this day and age, as well. yeah, exactly. So that's got a bit of that in there as well, which, but I think this actually does it better than Booksmart, I must admit. As I said about Booksmart at the time, I wish it wasn't just super bad. Yeah, no, yeah, you definitely did talk about it, and and I think that was exactly the point you made. Is it, it just felt like a, a super bad rehash, and it and it didn't yeah, land. Yeah, so, no. okay, the the other thing I would like to ask about this because I said I've I've only looked at the trailer. Is it as raunchy as the trailer would suggest? No, it's not as raunchy. It's not all sex, 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 sex. Oh, it's a little. I mean, it's teenagers, so it's going to be a bit of that, but it's got a lot of heart on it, and it's got a lot of thing about uh, the. F- girl's relationship with her friends and things like that in it as well to keep it a little bit you know what I mean so and there's a lot of being at school and pressures at school and the relationship between her mum and her she's got a cousin who lives with her so there's all these different things going on so it isn't just all super raunchy the raunchiest bits you know what I mean the sort of sexy not sex it's not raunchy there's no nudity or anything in it but people talking about sex and yeah like she says I'm gonna get I'm not going to be able to walk because I'm going to get rowed so hard and all that sort of thing. They are yeah. the most crudest bits are in that trailer. Yeah, because that's kind of like, based on what you said and then watching that trailer, that's what I was getting the impression. Like, I feel like they've taken all the raunchiest bits because of the show's title, Never Have I Ever. And and I thought, oh, is that what they've done? It is, is that going to put people off? And I thought, if people are listening to this and they, they like our suggestions of, and they go and watch the trailer... I felt like there was a bit of a parallel between how you were describing the show and how the trailer would would lead me to think it is. Um, so it's good to know that it's not, you know, just oh, crude comment after crude comment after crude comment because that would get tiresome and fast. No, yeah, no, there's a little bit in there to keep it spicy, but because it's an Indian show, but um, yeah, not enough in there to sort of make you go, oh, I wish they'd shut up. Oh, that's good then. That's good. So no, no, talking that's... of shutting up. Uh, right. Is there anything else you've watched? What? <laughs> Shut up. Is there anything else you've watched? That makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. <laughs> I mean, as I cough my way through this one, I mean, shutting up about Never Ever and Ever and telling us about something else you've watched. Right, so the next thing I'm going to talk about is Uploaded. It's on Amazon Prime. Oh, now I have got Amazon Prime, so I can I can watch it. Although, actually, yeah, I, I found out a... today I have Apple TV Plus as well because I bought an iPad. So I'll get it for 12 months for free. Oh, yeah, yeah exactly. Um, I said, no, it's not called Uploaded, actually. That's a mistake. Oh, was it a mistake when you uploaded the document? Yeah, yeah exactly. When I uploaded the document, <laughs> there was a mistake. It's called. It's just called Uploaded. It's, it's not sorry, Uploaded. It's just I upload. lost you for a second then. All oh, right, so it's just Upload. Yes, it's just Upload. So tell it's us about uploaded, it. Then. It's just called Upload. Right, so this is by Greg Daniels, who made The Office, in fact. who's was just... Uh, Showrunner on the American Office with Mindy Kaling, who was a writer on the American Office. So this all interconnects. He was also a showrunner on King of the Hill and a showrunner on Parks and Rec. So he's done a lot of those sort of uh, single cam comedies with no laugh track. That's what he sort of specialises in. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. He's the sort of person who brought that sort of thing, which is my favourite comedies. All my favourite comedies tend to be on NBC and tend not to have a laugh track. So not so much the American Office, but Parks and Rec and The Good Place are both on NBC. 
which you do love. I mean, Good Place nearly destroyed you. Oh yeah, I love that show, and this is and this has got a bit of the feel of the Good Place in it. As I said, the Good Place um, was wasn't uh, Greg Daniels. He was his creative partner on The Office and Parks and Rec. Uh, Michael Short's show. Okay, so you can see where there could be a bit of a crossover in in ideas and way in which they deliver the show because yeah, they work together. They probably work quite similar. Yeah, because uh, Good Place is about when you die, you go to up to heaven. This is there is no heaven. When you die, you get uploaded into a computer a bit like uh santa what's he called that episode of black mirror or something we've mentioned previously or like altered carbon because obviously that's the whole stack yeah, system, carbon, you come back yeah but this you just go into the computer the computer's heaven you go into a simulated oh, world yes of course yeah sorry no so i like I, san juniperno yeah no absolutely or or maybe a little bit i think when we discussed this beforehand there's a little bit of that downsizing to it as well where people are given the opportunity to continue living you know the the hard life or go take this alternate route and you get to have all the things you couldn't have in real world yeah <laughs> now because this is on amazon this is not a half hour comedy this is an hour comedy and there's a little bit of raunchiness in it as well it's a bit horny this show i'm in Please tell me more. Right, okay. So basically, the show's uh, Robbie Amell. Do you know who Robbie Amell is? Mm, yes, Arrow, yeah? Is that right? No, no. not Arrow. Oh, wait, is that He's Chris Arrow's Am- cousin. Oh, that's where I'm getting the... Okay, yeah, because I must admit, yeah. you did. I lost a little bit of your connection then, and I only had Amell, and, and, I, and I'm trying to picture the trailer. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's, that's Arrow. So it's his cousin, is it? Yeah, it's his cousin. He was also in... It was on Legends of Tomorrow, wasn't it? Yeah, it was in Arrow as Firestorm. I never really... I watched the first season of Arrow. I think I did the second and that was it. But that was a long time ago when it first came out. I was watching no, it. No, it was, it, was, it was on Flash. He wasn't on Arrow. Oh, right. But he yeah, really Robbie looks Amell like is Stephen Amell's cousin. It really looks like yeah. him. Yeah. Really looks like him. So, so, so starring anyway. Robbie Amell, what's the premise then? Tell yes. About it. Right, so... He's a, a computer programmer. A good start. Yep, and he's in a relationship with a girl who's kind of hot but kind of annoying. Hang on a second. Hang on. I mean, what? you want me to believe this show is realistic? He's a computer programmer and he has a girlfriend. Come on. And he looks like and he looks like Robbie Amell. <laughs> exactly. I didn't even want to touch that part. I'm like, come on. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, he's got a really hot girlfriend who's a bit of a. He's a bit annoying, and he's made a new. Him and his partner have made something new, so it's to do with finance. We don't know exactly what yet because we haven't got that far. And uh, and on the way home from Thanksgiving, his self-driving car gets into an accident and it drives into a truck. Oh, right. So he goes. So he goes to the hospital, and they're saying to him, "Oh, if we operate on you, you might die. So if you could either die or you can be uploaded, uh, uploaded into, into this virtual heaven." But basically, one of the things you while you're watching it going, well, "He's not that hurt. He, he looks a little hurt, but he doesn't look like he's going to die." Well, from the trailer that I watched, he seemed pretty cognitive, so he didn't exactly. seem that close to death. No, exactly. He didn't seem that close to death. But they upload him anyway, so he gets uploaded into heaven. And it, and then you get all the sort of jokes about it being in a computer game. There's lag. I mean, they, uh, if he wants to get a drink, there's a two ninety nine top-up fee. 
I mean, oh, brilliant. In, uh, yeah, on the trailing, yeah, the in-app purchases, which is brilliant because on today's show, I'm going to introduce what's grinding Gary's gears. And uh, one of the things is micro transactions. And I think that's quite poignant that, uh, that that's... Yeah, exactly. So it's got a lot of that sort of techno stuff in it. But it's also got a love story between him and his angel. So when you get uploaded, you get an angel who looks after you, who's a person who's like a call centre like yeah. assistant who talks to you and like so there's gonna be like a you can see there's like a love thing going on between him and her that's sort of well, building you can tell in that the background from the trailer. she he's, says he's, that he's doesn't also... she in the trailer yeah, exactly. she says she's like, in love with someone why are they... yeah why are the girl who's who's got that much charisma and who's that pretty like a twat like Stephen Amell. <laughs> <Probably>. <laughs> Leave Stephen out of this. He's all right. We like him. <laughs> and that's one of my problems with this show is that the, the, the Robbie's character, whose name I can't even remember, he just comes <laughs> just across Robbie. as such a douchebag. Yeah, he just comes across as such a vain, egotistical douchebag. And I'm just like, are we supposed to find him likeable? Like, I don't care if he's up in this. And this is one of the problems. I think he was, he was the, he's wrong for the part, I think. Really, I think we could have done someone with a little bit more of a likability factor to sort of latch onto. They needed the casting directors from Never Have I Ever. That's what they needed. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, he's all right, but I wasn't. I watched the first episode and I was like, "Well, it feels a bit like the Good Place. This feels a bit like uh, a bit like the techno conspiracy thing going on." Because was he killed? You know what I mean? Did they? It wasn't an accident. Why did the self-driving car drive into the back of a lorry when he's telling him to stop? And all these sort of things. And it's that love story as well that's going on. And you've got like the all oh, technology is bad, nothing works. And I was just like, there's too many ideas and none of them sort of meld together. Like on the previous show, Never I Have It, it all sort of melds together. But this, the parts of it that just doesn't work for me. I've and only watched the- one episode. I was going to say from the trailer. Oh, you've only watched one episode. <laughs> okay, we'd watched like three yeah. or four at least. Okay, well, well, maybe, no, maybe they're an hour long. <laughs> he'll start to become more likable as he as he starts to kind of, you know, realise that he's not himself anymore. I I don't know, but what I do know from what you're saying is that you, you've thrown out a lot of, as you said, story threads, a lot of things that seem kind of unconnected, a bit convoluted at the moment, and the trailer itself kind of gives off. A, a bit of a femme fatale um, sort of feeling from his partner. I'm assuming it's his wife or, or something like that. I, I, just from the trailer alone, I get the feeling that she's got something to do with him him dying and his, his accident. So if you then start weaving that into it as well, it does sound like there's a lot going on. Yeah, maybe. I, my leg is killing me, I'm telling you. It's <laughs> just going to really, say... Really <laughs> uh, so, as, so, as I'm talking to you, all I could... My leg is fucking killing me. Oh, <laughs> Good thing we're doing a, an at-home version and we can swear because uh, I've got a feeling that your leg's going to uh, gonna throw out a few swear words. But look, would you recommend off the first episode that people should watch Upload? Uh, no. <laughs> I can't. I just, okay. I don't know. I've just, I was just a bit, uh, I was just a bit, I mean, it should be half an hour. An hour is just a little bit too long. I think maybe if it was a half hour and a little bit more punchy, I think it might have worked a little bit better. Making, I don't know if they're all an hour long with just the first episode. But well, I know with needed to be Hunters, tighter. Hunters, that was, uh, I think it was an hour for the first episode and every episode after that was 45 minutes, I think, from memory. Yeah, I think the first episode was an hour and 45 minutes, wasn't it? 
It, it might have been, yeah. So I think that might be a, an Amazon thing where they do a long episode for the first one and then everything's kind of shorter after that. I don't know. I mean, I'd have to look at it. But um, look, I, I like the idea of the premise. It's got enough intrigue that I think I'll still give it a go, at least watch that, you know, maybe the first couple of episodes and see where it goes. Yeah, I mean... But, uh, have well, you watched anything you else then that, that that might be worth recommending? Right, okay. Uh, also, on Sky One, we've got Code 404. Okay, tell me more about that then. So that's a buddy cop uh, buddy cop comedy starring those two well-known comedy actors. You know what I mean? These are like, <laughs> we need to do a comedy drama. We need really two, the two best comic actors in the world. Who have we got? Little Stevie Graham, known for his comic delivery. Everything I've seen him, he's a hoot. Yeah, virtues. <laughs> he was a hoot in that. This is England. A hoot in that. Gangs in New York. A hoot in that. The gentleman, hilarious. I laughed every single time he was on screen. In the uh, not the gentleman. The Why Irishman. do I feel like you're being glib, but at the same time, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just like Steve, Stephen Graham, the, the Britain's best actor. There's no getting away from it. We all love Stephen Graham. He's amazing in everything <laughs> he's ever been in. But he's not known for his comedy chops, is he? Really. Uh, I think it's because he's got that, that kind of puppy dog appeal. I, I can tell in the 30-second trailer, that's all there is that's out there. I can kind of see why he's got the role because he seems so unassuming and unintimidating, which is the complete contrast of what his character's supposed to be. Um, but, yeah, I wouldn't say he's necessarily known as a, as a comedic actor. And I no. don't even know who Daniel May is, just off his name. Daniel May, he's, he's a tall geezer. He's got black hair. He, he's in the third season, is it, of Line of Duty? Uh, he, he might he might have been. Do you know what? I just realised I've been confusing What's Stephen that? Graham and Daniel May. It's Daniel May oh, that looks like the puppy dog. That That's how much I know who these two people are. <laughs> and and that's great Stephen a cast Graham. I, I said every single TV programme that Stephen Graham's been in, I said Irishman. I know, and yet for oh, I know <laughs> Stephen Graham is. Of course, I do. Yeah, no, he is brilliant. But yeah, you're absolutely right. Not known for his comedy. Now, he's the best. now you're making the a best. lot more sense. We're on the same page now. <laughs> <laughs> Anyone listening to this again? I don't think Gary knows who he's talking about. <laughs> yeah, when you said he's got like puppy dog eyes, I thought Stephen Graham, <laughs> Al Capone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. But yeah, so you're right. Stephen Graham's not known for that, but Daniel May, uh, he's known for his comedy. Yeah, no, he's he's I don't know what comedy. He's well, he's no, well, he's not really known for his comedy. He's known for being a puppy dog. You know, that's the it's the roles that he gets the roles that Danny Dyer used to get. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but he's got a little bit more acting chops to it, so he's he can carry it up a little bit better. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah exactly. So anyway, so. Daniel's May's character, the Major, has been brought back from the dead. He got involved in a shootout while undercover, and then they've brought him back. They've augmented him, but because he's in the UK, he's a bit of a crap version of Robocop, basically. <laughs> yeah, I remember when you first started telling me about this. Before you even said Robocop, I was like, "UK's crap version of Robocop." You're like, "Yep." <laughs> I'm like, okay. Exactly. And the show is very, very silly. It's not. No, I mean, it's not a drama in any sort of case. It's very silly. It's very, like almost a farce, but without being too farcical. But it's yeah. very silly. <laughs> and it, there's some bits of it that are fun, like you know, Stephen yeah. Graham falls off a 
falls off a bridge and lands on the floor and a motor car goes over the top of him. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> there's, there's, a really, there's some quite funny bits in it, but it's a bit weird. Yeah. It doesn't... There's another one where he finds where there's like a conspiracy uh, thriller bit because like Daniel Mays was set up and he was killed. Who set him up? That sort of thing goes through the thing and... But it's all up on Sky One. If you've got Sky, you can watch it up on Catch Up and watch it all in one go. And they're about 25 minutes each. You can get through it quite fast. There's enough in that, because it's only six episodes of 25 minutes, you can get through it really fun, you know, really fast. It's quite fun. Yeah. So I'd say watch that rather than upload for me anyway, because, I mean, like, three episodes is nearly an hour of upload. So, I mean, two hours, two and a half hours, you've watched the whole thing. Yeah, exactly. It sounds like if you're gonna if you're gonna commit time to anything, out of the two of them, you're saying go for code four hundred four. It's a little bit a little yeah, bit more exactly. fun. Doesn't take itself too seriously. Yeah, uh, and it, and it's some, quite easy to consume. Yeah, some bits of it don't really work, but it's over in a flash. You can just get through it, and you go, oh yeah, you're forgetting about ten minutes. But while you're there, you'll be you you kind of enjoy it. So, and that's what we need. I think a bit of silliness is what we need in these times. Okay, so it seems like we're probably, probably after everything you've watched this week, we're saying, never have I ever, give that a watch. Um, the Beastie Boys story, give that a watch, but listen to the audio book. And Code 404, if you're really starting to run a bit thin, you'll get a little bit of enjoyment out of that. Outside of that, the others probably sounds like a miss. But oh, maybe so. is there one other thing you might be able to recommend to boost our spirits in this a lockdown times? Things. A couple other things I've uh, there's something I didn't read, uh, write down and I just remembered Circus of Books. All oh, right, okay. I know nothing about. So it. this is a this is a documentary on Netflix about a nice old Jewish couple, a lovely little oh. Jewish couple. Yeah. And they run a gay bookstore in LA. L- love it, love it already. You One don't need to biggest, tell me anything uh, more. Yeah, it, uh, it's really. The, the problem is the internet has killed bookstores, so their books, you know, it's coming to the end of the life of the bookstore. But they're such a nice couple, and it's such a nice little thing to watch how they react with all the gay people and everything. And it's a little bit of heartwarming, I think. I've really, really enjoyed it. It's, it's not much, you know what I mean? It's kind of slight, but it's just the story of these two people who ended up owning a gay bookstore and getting involved in the the world of uh, LGBT. And it's just, I just really enjoyed it. I was like, ah, oh, this is lovely. This is. Wait, is this a documentary? Yeah, it's a doc. Oh, I thought it was a series. No, no, it's a it's a documentary on Netflix. Oh, you didn't make that clear at the start. But even well, you know me, I oh, love my I documentaries, so uh, I'm, yeah, I'm definitely going to watch that. Yeah, it's an hour and a half, and it's just I, I just really I was like ah, oh, it really had a little heartwarming ending to it for it, so it really sort of brought me up a little bit. I was like, oh, that's really oh, nice. Oh, all right, about well, that's... things that will raise your spirits. Yeah, go on. What else you got for us? Talk about things. It's Kermit of the Muppets. He did a special yeah. performance of the Rainbow Connection, and it's now on YouTube. Oh. It's just Kermit with his banjo singing Rainbow Connection in a swamp, and it's just lovely. It's just ah, oh, I love I love Kermit. I love the Rainbow Connection. <laughs> I must admit, I couldn't actually remember Rainbow Connection when I watched it, but it, you're right. It is nice. It's just just one of those things where you watch it and you walk away from it. You're like, I'm in a bit of a better mood now. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So that that so if you're feeling a little bit down, bung that on, get your spirits up a little bit. The lovers, the dreamers, and me. Oh, oh. oh exactly. Now, I think is that is that covered everything? Then have we have we actually managed everything. to to get to the end of what you've watched this week? 
yeah, there's more stuff coming next week as well. Ooh, so ooh. next week will be another jam-packed episode of what I've been watching. I was going to say, we say what we've been watching is the name of the segment, but it's not. It's what Daryl's been watching. And then sometimes what happens is Daryl really sells it and then Gary goes off and watches it. He's like, oh, yeah, that was really good. I think historically that's pretty much happened with everything I've watched that's a new series over the last three months. You watch it, tell me if it's any good, then I go and watch it. But I'm going to throw in there that I do have two kids. So my time is is a little bit more uh, at a premium. And uh, I can't I can't be giving it to things like the new Ghost in the Shell series or Gary, Uploaded Gary, Gary, if it's now. And if, Gary, go on, Daryl. What is it, Daryl? You what said, my time's a premium, so I'm watching LA Confidential instead of watching something new. <laughs> LA Confidential's two hours long, mate. What are you doing? Don't give me that. <laughs> You've got to be, film noir is my favourite. Uh, genre of films and I kind of found myself was like I don't actually think I've ever watched LA Confidential I think I've just seen scenes from it so it was on Amazon Prime I put it on it's brilliant it's a classic um, it's definitely more enjoyable than listening to you move around in the room at the moment <laughs> so that, that's for sure but look there's I will try next week if you watch anything decent before we come to record uh, on the day that we record, I'm going to keep that a mystery. Um, then I will try and watch some beforehand. Um, but outside of that, I think uh, that, that probably covers what Daryl's been watching. Yes, and now it's uh, Gary to talk for about 20 minutes and we can just sit down and reply to him. <laughs> Yeah, exactly, yeah, if, it, if it all works. But basically, as anybody that listens to our show knows, I used to do my own section, which was the anime adventure. But the problem I was having with that is that it just takes too much time. You know, most animes come out with 20-odd episodes a, a season. And if I've got to watch that on top of other things as well and then prepare the show, edit the show, do things like Top of the Flops, which has returned, it becomes it become a little bit too much for me. And I realised that, you know what? There's things in this world that wind me up, things that wind me up within pop culture and actually things where I think people need a voice. They need somebody out there that's going to say enough or somebody that's going to say Make yourself clear. Or somebody that says, you know what, you need to do this. And for that reason, because my name's Gary, and we like to do the Stan Lee way of keeping everything... Well, what's what, There's a name for it, isn't it, where you always use the same letters. What's it called? Um, Alliteration. Yes, exactly. We're, we're doing the Stan Lee technique, and it's what's grinding Gary's gears. And this week, I want to talk about Andrew Wilson's war on gamers now andrew wilson for those who don't know is the ceo of ea now i'm just going to set the scene for you imagine a world where everyone is born equal no matter who your parents are where you can live in a house as nice as your neighbors own a wardrobe just as flashy drive a car just as nice. A world where everybody is given the same opportunities. All that matters is the limitations of that world and who you are. Well, that world once existed. It was known as the gaming world. 
a utopian place where people could leave the pressures of this world and live out their desires in a place free of the restrictions in real life. As close to a utopia you will ever find. Well, that was until Andrew Wilson, using his electronic army, invaded this world and introduced capitalism in the form of microtransactions and surprise mechanics. Or as the natives would come to refer to it, Wilson's loot boxes. Now for those now, Can I just say something? Yeah, yeah, go fire. Why up. did you go for why did you go for wardrobes that are flashy and cars that are nice? Shouldn't it have been the other way around? <laughs> probably should <laughs> Flashy wardrobes. <laughs> oh, come upstairs, mate. Look at this new wardrobe. It's well flashy. <laughs> <laughs> this is it. Mate, I'm, a, I'm an 80s child. It's all about having a flashy wardrobe. <laughs> and the problem nice is... Car. And my problem, Daryl, is that I'm also a council estate kid. I was born with no money. And I can't get that in the real world, but I used to be able to get it in the gaming world. And I can't no, anymore. In, in, in a Sims, you're just like... All I want to do in The Sims is get a flashy wardrobe. That's all I. <laughs> That's all I care yeah, about. I don't care what job we're getting, not nope. anything else. Just need a flashy job. Just a flashy just, wardrobe. Just a flashy wardrobe. Anything could be flashy. As long as it was flashy in my life, that's all I cared about. But Andrew Wilson, and good thing you mentioned Sims because they're an EA property now. Andrew Wilson took that away from me with his loot boxes. What's a, what's a cunt. <laughs> 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 and that is the end of what's grinding Gary's gears. <laughs> Completely. But, <laughs> so for those that don't know and you want to understand how big of a cunt he actually is, you need to understand what loot boxes are and how we got here. So essentially, loot boxes started life out as baseball cards inside of cigarette packs in the 18. 80s. This kind of marketing ploy has been around for nearly 150 years. And what is that ploy? The ploy is blind buying. It's people purchasing things and not knowing what they're going to get and having varying uh, items that they can get, therefore creating the need and the desire inside of people, as Pokemon would say, to collect them all. And, and that's what happened, is the marketing world had stumbled across a gold mine. And that gold mine, that technique, that surprise mechanic technique that EA would like you to call it, not loot boxes, has evolved over time. We all remember the Panini football stickers. We all remember Magic the Gathering, Pokemon, Yu-Gi-Oh, and much, much more. And what we've seen over time is the digital transformation of that random surprise mechanic of blind buying. And that is where Andrew Wilson fucked my utopia. Now, the shorthand from the things that I, I talked about are called trading card games or TCGs. And the loot boxes very much of, uh, follow the same pattern of the TCGs of the past and the casinos of past and present. Now, again, I've said loot boxes a few times, and so for those that haven't quite got it, let me tell you exactly what I mean by that. Loot boxes is the collective term given to the functionality within a game for a player to purchase real-world 
currency or, or, or for a player to purchase these box, sorry, using real-world currency. And they are random in-game items that can be used to modify your playing experience or, as some people would say, used to give you a competitive advantage. It's turned games from a skill-based or an ability-based to pay to win. Now, EA essentially make, I think it's somewhere in the region of 50% of their revenue now, and the majority of that comes from FIFA. And they have very much taken their cues from the football packs of the past, such as the Panini stickers. And what you do in FIFA, and in particular their mode called Ultimate Team, is you purchase packs of randomised players and items. It'll be players, contracts, so on and so forth. And then you can use those as part of your Ultimate Team or to build a collection that you maybe trade for something else or whatever it may be. But no matter how you look at it, certainly the FIFA model, so far... So trading card games. Now, there is a big difference between the trading card games of the past and the loot boxes that we're experiencing today. And it's a big difference, and one that EA has really tried to distance themselves from. And that is the fact that you don't actually own anything. I buy this pack, I open it, I get a digital card that I do not own. Now, EA, and if you watch their parliamentary proceedings, which I did, they like to refer to their loot box as surprise mechanics, and they like to say that it's something akin to Kinder Eggs. Now, last time I checked, and I've got two kids, one of which loves Kinder Eggs, they come with a physical toy, something you physically own. And in fact, they mentioned other products like Lowell's or, or whatever it's called, and other surprise toys. But again, in every one of them that they compare themselves to, to try and say that they're not unsafe for kids, they're not gambling, they all come with a physical product that you actually own. And that was true of all the trading card games of the past. Pokemon, you had a card, baseball card, everything gave you something. So even if you didn't get the thing you wanted, you still had something for your money. And that means that these cards that you get from the packs are literally not worth the paper that they are not printed on. Especially when you factor in that FIFA is an annual release, meaning that within nine months, 12 months tops of you purchasing that pack, maybe spending thousands to, to get the best team possible, it is worthless. You cannot resell it. It doesn't appreciate in value. It doesn't go up. It is worth zero the very next iteration of the game. You can't even carry your players over. So how did we get here with loot boxes and indeed FIFA? And the fact is, is that even though we're doing the home version now, I'm not as restricted by time. I'm not going to go through the full history of microtransactions. I'd have to, to go over to Japan, tell you all how it started there, bring it over to here, talk about things like Overwatch, Signs of Fourth, talk about mobile gaming. I just don't have the time. But what I will talk about, and what we have been talking about, is the Wilson loot boxes. And they're, a very, they're called Wilson loot boxes because it was a concept that Andrew Wilson came up with. And let me tell you, they are the biggest evil, the worst kind of predatory, cash-grabbing type of microtransaction to ever infest 
the world of gaming. Because unlike things like Overwatch or World of Warcraft that do have loot boxes, they are cosmetic. They do not make a difference to the gameplay or indeed to how far you can go in the game. That is not the case with Wilson loot boxes. With Wilson loot boxes, they modify gameplay experience. Or indeed, in some instances, virtually, as was seen with Battlefront 2, hide parts of the game behind an invisible paywall. But again, I'm not going to go into that at the moment because I'll talk a little bit about it later and most people already know about the Battlefront 2 um, controversy. It's about two years old now. But tracking his rise to the top role of CEO of EA is simple. All we need to do is track the invention of these loot boxes. And we can do that simply by looking at two key dates in his history and the history of Wilson's loot box strategy. And like James Holzer, who I'm pretty sure, Daryl, you don't know who I'm talking about. Um, he's the guy who broke Jeopardy. He turned up to bait, break the game and maximise oh, yeah, a sweet... Oh, yeah, that guy. Yeah, he had 32 wins in a row, two and a half million, destroyed yeah, everybody. Broke it, did it? Yeah, yeah completely. Yeah. It was and, uh, all about getting the daily doubles at the right time. Exactly, and, and going for the thousands at the beginning and, and betting big uh, yeah, and yeah. constantly changing categories so that he didn't give his, con his contestants a chance to settle in a rhythm. Um, he completely broke Jeopardy, and yeah, they, had to, they had to cheat yeah. him out of it. The way they, they beat him in the end was by making all of the questions really easy. So he had a high hit ratio of something like 97% of questions answered correctly. So by making the game harder, it just meant the other contestants couldn't answer the questions. So the way they beat him in the end was to get somebody on who did a PhD in Jeopardy questions and they made the questions the easiest they'd ever been to the point only one question was answered incorrectly the whole show. And that's how they, they removed him from the game. A slight, <laughs> slight side note then. Um, but just like him, yeah. Andrew Wilson had turned up to break the game and maximise those sweet, sweet profits. So the two key dates, I haven't got the exact day, but it's March 2009 is your first one. And that is the introduction or the launch of FIFA Ultimate Teams as a DLC, and for those uninitiated, that's downloadable content, on FIFA 09. This wasn't, however, the first iteration of this in a FIFA game. The mode had actually first appeared in the FIFA Champions League spin-off game. Um, however... To quote EA, it didn't have the impact they expected. And that's probably because it was offline only and had no microtransactions. But other than that, everything was the same. The pack systems, bronze, gold, silver, the way the team set up, everything was there. And Andrew Wilson had seen something. So with that started a decade, what has now been a decade-long pilfering of not only our pockets, but the very heart of the gaming community. No longer would the world be a place unburdened by the limitations of your real life. Now, as with every aspect of life, what matters is where you were born. So the second date we need to know is September the 17th. Where you was born? 
where you was so so what i mean by that is it's social economic standing now as we know genetic lottery the genetic lottery exactly where you are born plays the but most the biggest significant part in your opportunities in life and your ability to 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 make money to 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 so have the riches of life where you yeah so so to be good at FIFA, you've got to be born in a city in a first world country. Is that what you're so saying you, to me? Exactly. So you have lots of money to buy lots of packs to have all the best players. And in a day gone by, that didn't matter. It didn't matter if I was a council estate kid going up against a, a, a private educated kid who gets a £10,000 allowance from his dad every week. It didn't matter. All that mattered was my ability versus their ability. But now what matters is Who's got the bigger wallet? Who can buy the better team? And that's how we get to this date, September the 17th, 2013. Now, again, I'm not going to go through all of this, but in the mid-2000s, EA was hemorrhaging money. They were in dire straits. And through this release, this inception of, of microtransactions and loot boxes, by 2013, EA had announced $200 million in sales from Ultimate Team alone and promoted Andrew Wilson to the CEO of EA Sports. And this figure, as of 2019, which is when we had the last full financial release, this figure grew to $800 million made through FIFA Ultimate Team alone. They were making more money through Ultimate Teams than selling the game itself. And as I mentioned previously, their microtransactions are now accounting for over 50% of their business. And EA reported on the 31st of December 2019 revenues of $1 billion from microtransactions alone. Gal. So, yeah, yes, Daryl, yes. Well, I have to say something here. That's a yeah. lot of Wonga. <laughs> it's a lot, a lot of Wonga. And do you know what they said they owed it to? They owed it to the release of FIFA 20 in September. So in one quarter alone, they made $1 billion in microtransactions. Now, EA would like you to think that this is not gambling. So I'm going to tell you why it is gambling. And I'm going to tell you why it's destroying the industry if you haven't already worked it out. Now, the definition of gambling, according to the dictionary.com, is this. The activity or practice of playing at a game of chance for money or other stakes. Now, EA claims that their ultimate team packs are not gambling. Yet, they involve real money in return for the chance of high value rewards which is in or which is within the definition of other stakes now the first counter to this that they would make is that they don't use real world currency you have to acquire fifa points well if i was prosecuting them i would very quickly squash this argument by drawing people's attention to casinos they're pretty famous for doing something similar they call them chips and I also believe they call that gambling. Now, more evidence. They also they call claim... chips. They call them... Uh, chips. I've been to a chip shop. Never gambled yeah. in a chip shop. Have you never chips, gambled in a chip shop? Them. 
Ah, you see, that's where you mean. No, you have no, to go no. to the chip shop, then take your chips to the casino, put it all on black. Ah. You see, that, that's where you're going ah. wrong, you see. And that's where... Uh, can, it, can I use some haddock as well? If I've got a bit of, bit of haddock? You, you, you could, but you've got to be careful of security because they might think something's a bit fishy about the way you're playing. <laughs> hey! Hey! <laughs> hey! Right, uh, so more... No, no. That actually yeah, was in the that was actually in the notes that one that wasn't. No, it years, wasn't. One. Stop telling me. We said that one. We wrote that one down. No, we didn't. Said, you say something about chips. I say something about haddock, and then you say it's fishy. Like, no, yeah, no, <laughs> no. <laughs> that would make it the worst joke in the world if we actually pre-planned that joke. <laughs> right, so that we could get back on we, track. You want to go to you want to go to EA? And go. I've got I've got. A, I've got a large portion of chips here, salt and vinegar. What can I get for that? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Thrown out the building, most likely. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, but I want to give you some more evidence that it's gambling. Now, they also claim, they being EA, that by blocking the sale of these cards in the real world, there is no monetary value and therefore discounts them from being considered as monetary rewards with EA going further by saying they will not only ban anyone caught in the act of trading these cards or in-game currency for real money, but they'll also pass their details on to the authorities, which I might quickly add, I wish somebody would do about EA. Now, what they want us to think with can that... You, can, you, can, can you just um, imagine getting yeah. reported to the authorities for sending fees? Like you go to the police go, these people are sending FIFA cards, and the police go... What are FIFA cards? There's something you get in a the game. They're selling them. They're going, piss off. Imagine being in a prison trying to trying to establish a rep, and you're like, yeah, you know, you're going around the room. What have you been in here for? Oh, I've killed five people. You know, like, what are you in here for? Oh, I robbed fifteen banks. What are you in here for? I sold some FIFA cards to a kid. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. And also. You can assign a monetary value to them because there was at one point a massive industry on YouTube of people just opening FIFA cards. There still is. It's not was. There exactly. still is a massive industry. Yeah, and so you can you also open the FIFA card and you... Well, I was gonna say you can apply a monetary value, and I will actually go through that later because there is a monetary value, because there is a cost of how long it would take you or how much it would take you in terms of in-game currency that you can earn to acquire certain players versus uh, what it would might cost with a pack, for example. So there absolutely is a real-world value to this. But they want us to think there isn't because they're a conscientious, conscientious company looking out for its customers. When in reality... <laughs> <laughs> that's why they're not that's bad the guys. They're not bad guys. Remember that. That's EA the best, are not bad the, guys. That's the best joke through the whole entire episode. That's the funniest thing that is said. That <laughs> EA are a conscientious company. We only buy other other developers and then shut them down and then sack all the people who work there. Yeah. We've only done that 15,000 times. We're conscientious, <laughs> exactly. though. We love it. Yeah, we're conscious. Oh, oh you're going to love it when I get to Andrew Wilson's three pillars. But in reality, they have done this for two reasons. One, to distance themselves from traditional gambling as much as possible. And two, let's face it, they want people to buy packs they don't want you giving your money to someone else who got lucky and got a Ronaldo or a Messi no they want you to spend that 50 100 pounds on the chance of getting it in their packs so they keep all that sweet 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 money 
It's not. It's got nothing to do with protecting players. You know? No, obviously. Because they what they want you to do, they, all they want you to do, they've got all the mechanics, they've got all the data, they just want you to keep coming back to the well of uncertainty. And that's what it is. But you'd think that would be enough for any sane and logical person to look at that and go, well, yeah, it's gambling and the moves that you're making are... You're, you're monopolising a market that you've created and you're not allowing any movement on it because you don't want it to be seen as gambling. But further to that, EA continuously creates new packs, offering a continuing variety of super rare, limited time-only cards. Now, in 1996, and this is very reminiscent of it, there was a huge controversy that brought about lawsuits against multiple baseball card manufacturers alleging that the packs constituted an illegal lottery and why did those lawsuits come around because the packs started introducing rarer and limited time only cards meaning that they were creating as they said an illegal lottery and there was also similar lawsuits brought about against nintendo in 1999 over pokemon cards but again I would like you to draw your attention back to the fact that at least, at least in these instances, you actually own something. And I've gone through all those and we haven't even touched upon because I haven't got the time. I'd have to spend hours going through all the psychological casino-like tactics that they use to entice players into getting the packs in the first place and how they keep you coming back for more. Now, the fact that this isn't considered gambling means that they don't have to apply a limit to how much customers can spend and they don't have a duty of care to their customers' well-beings. And I know that that is something that gambling companies have to do because I used to work in a bookies and we have to monitor what people are spending. We have to make sure that it is affordable for them. We have to make sure that when the fun stops, you stop. That's a slogan. And here is what FIFA don't want you to know, and slightly alluding to what I was just talking about there. Now, should this be classed as gambling, not only would they need to introduce safeguards, as previously mentioned, and also things like age verification, so on and so forth, they would also need to provide full transparency with their algorithm to show the true likelihood of receiving a high-value reward which is much lower, I can assure you, than the percentage that they show at the moment. Now, at the moment, if you buy, and you don't play the game, for those that do, they'll know what I mean, a standard gold pack, it's 7,500 uh, in-game coins, or I think uh, 50 FIFA points, something like that. You have a 1% chance of receiving a card that's 85 rated or above. Yet, they are releasing new cards on a weekly basis the majority of which are 85 or above. So if you're trying to get that Ronaldo and you think, oh, I've got 1%, there's 50 85s, 50 times I should be able to get him. No, there will be a 1,000 85 pluses and you'll get duplicates and the cost will just keep going up and up and up. And the likelihood of you getting that player is astronomical. And people have done a little bit of maths around this because you can purchase these players using the in-game currency on a trading market. So if somebody gets a player, they don't want them, they can trade them for, for in-game coins. 
But some of these players, if you want the top players, they cost millions of coins. And people have done a few calculations to roughly work out how much time you'd have to play, the hours to earn the coins versus working a, a, a minimum wage job. And to get a top-ranked team, the approximate cost is £5,000. Now, let that sink in for a second. It would cost you to get a top-level team £5,000 for something you do not own that has no value the following year. And if you go through the loot box method of doing it, which is the only way EA will allow you because it's, air quotation marks, illegal to buy the coins and they will not sell you the coins themselves, then that cost is going to be staggeringly higher still. Now, I've never... I mean, Go on. Go ahead. £5,000, you could buy a football team, can't you? So you could buy a real-life football team. I think Liverpool's out for sale, isn't it, £5,000? Yeah, about that, Daryl, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. right. You've, you've definitely yeah. not uh, yeah. shown your lack of football knowledge there. You know, £5,000 <laughs> would... Why waste of £5,000 on, on something you can't even own or doesn't even exist? You can buy a football team. Exactly. It makes sense to me. Exactly. And, and of course, this is all on top of the $60 or £60 in the UK price, standard price of the game in the first place. Now, look, some people will try and argue with me on this, maybe some representatives of EA, that this is OK. This practice is OK. And the reason it's OK is because games cost so much to make right now. Well, let me cry a river for our dear old friend EA. Because let me tell you that there is a parallel industry making very similar costly media and they're charging much less and if you haven't got it i'm talking about the film industry they spend billions on films they still charge you 10 pounds to go watch it not 60 pounds and then thousands on top of that and also we all get to get the same experience when we're watching it and not even to mention you want to come at me with this argument i'm sorry it's one billion dollars a quarter really what they're spending are they spending one billion dollars a quarter making these games for me because that's what they're making in profit for these microtransactions and look you don't need a crystal ball you don't need their financials to tell you that's not the case so from now on anybody that wants to come at me with that argument that games cost too much just shut the fuck up honestly you don't know what you're talking about. This is greed in its purest form. As I said, Andrew Wilson invaded my gaming world and he introduced capitalism. Now, I've told you all of that and I've mentioned Andrew Wilson several times and there's a reason for that. As I said, he introduced this. Here's why we've seen it spread like a virus quicker than COVID-19 across our gaming industry. And let me tell you what his three pillars are. And this is according to his LinkedIn strategy. So these are the pillars in which he believes to make EA successful, to make them a popular company. Because let's not forget, they have been voted America's worst company twice. He says that they need to follow these three core pillars. And the first of which is putting players first. Now, you said that last thing about them being a conscientious company was the best joke. I think that's the best fucking joke. How can you, in good conscience, be charging people thousands, letting people spend thousands of pounds on something just so they can enjoy the game as much as somebody else? Something that you know 
Next year, you're going to make them do all over again. And his next pillar is driving a digital transformation. Well, he did that. He transformed my gaming world into a capitalist world and then operating as one team. Well, maybe EA is operating as one team, but I certainly don't think we're working as a team. Definitely not. I feel like they're doing everything possible to take gaming away from us. And look, let's face it, if he actually stuck to those things, what a world that would be. But the truth is, it's never going to happen. So now I've told you the state of play, I've told you everything that's going on, I've told you what's happened within a succinct purpose. Really then, to bring this, this segment to an end, we need to look at what's being done and what is the future likely to look out. Now, I briefly mentioned Star Wars Battlefront 2, and as I say, I'm not going to go massively into it because I'm sure most people, even remotely into gaming, will have heard about this one. But for those that haven't, here's a quick overview. In short, in the midst of the growing criticism surrounding the loot boxes, or as EA likes to call them, surprise mechanics, EA launched Star Wars Battlefront 2. And this was mere months after they had the uh, a parliamentary proceeding, not the parliamentary proceeding. And essentially, what they did was they launched the game and all but closed off Darth Vader and Luke Skywalker to be in loot box only rewards. Now, now EA would argue, no, you, you could earn the characters in the game. Yes, if you wanted to put in 40 hours of in-game time or for the low, low price of $3.99, you could just buy the characters. They knew exactly what they're doing and they also held other parts of the games behind these loot boxes, behind these paywalls. And it was so obviously designed to force the players into purchasing loot box. And this caused a tremendous backlash, one that made its way finally into the political landscape. And it could mean, especially when we talk about the fact that 50% of EA's revenue is based around this, it could mean serious ramifications. And even though we're in the middle of this lockdown and we've got this pandemic, I don't want them to get away with it. I am not going to stop talking about this until legislation at least comes into my country that bans these. Because they are taking advantage, they are predatory, and they are not what gaming should be. And just to let you know, Australia, the UK and the US have all begun proceedings to look into the nature of these practices and whether or not they constitute a form of gambling. Now, what I should advise people is that where these countries have said they're not gambling, they have said so because it's not within the current remit of gambling. There's not a convenient box that this type of interaction falls under. However, within the definition of what gambling constitutes, it does. So it's just, there's an issue of, they technically, it's not within legislation, so they need to change the legislation to bring it in. And that's what they're looking at at the moment. But Belgium has already banned them. You cannot have loot boxes. And so has the Netherlands. And France currently has brought about multiple lawsuits against EU. And if they yeah, lose uh, against trust... EA, sorry. Can we trust France, France, Belgium, and the Netherlands? They put mayonnaise on their chips, so I don't trust them. 
that you you make a very good point. You do, <laughs> but I think the ends justifies the means. Let them have a go. No, no, you should never. You should never put mayonnaise in your chips. <laughs> Bring it back to chips. <laughs> no. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. You should never put mayonnaise in your chips, and you should never try and pretend FIFA points aren't chips. But look, here's a quote. You know, go to a go to a casino in a. Belgium and just get your mayonnaise out and putting it all over the chips. Go, that's what you do here, isn't it? You put mayonnaise in your chips. Your French fries. The frit and frit. And you're going, frit, what? Frit, no. Chips, mate. Chips. Mayonnaise. You like a bit of that, didn't you? A bit hard for my like, a bit crunchy, but you know, the mayonnaise uh, helps it smooth, go down smoothly. But here's a quote from um, the, the, the lawyers that are bringing about these lawsuits against EA. And it says, these car packs along with several other paid-for loot boxes, bracket, randomly assigned in-game benefits, are banned in the Netherlands and Belgium already. And if this ruling goes against EU in France, it could lead to an EU-wide ban. It's something that EA has worried about, seeing as 20% or 850 million of EA's net revenue, which has gone up, I think it's at 27% now, this was back in 2018 comes from ultimate teams and their packs alone so of course ea do not want this classified as gambling but so let's say they don't want to get rid of it what can be done well let's do what andrew wilson said let's put players first you say this is akin to kinder eggs it's therefore designed for children and if it's designed for children it should also be there to help them have that sense of achievement, not I have to buy everything to feel like I've accomplished something in my life. And it's, I suppose, not unique to children, but of course, though, they are the ones that are going to feel the most pressure because they don't have any of their own money coming in and they're going to be constantly pestering their parents. So, as I said, if he wants to put players first, then how about... You don't charge people for it on top of the cost of the game. Make it really easy for everybody to get the best teams or play on an equal footing. Remove the caste system that you have created of the haves and the haves-nots in the world of gaming. Now, I like anybody. I enjoy a good game of chance. What I don't enjoy is the gaming world turning into the real world, which is pay to win. So that's what I think they need to do, but let's face it, they're not going to do. So to end this, to end this segment off, I'm going to tell you where I actually think we're heading. And where I think we're heading is reoccurring payments. This is what it's all about. Even after the controversy, EA released a statement to their board saying, don't worry about the microtransactions. Our aim is still reoccurring payments. They don't want you to buy the game once and then never come back again. They want you to keep paying. Something akin to the World of Warcraft model. Monthly subscriptions keep coming back. Brand loyalty. So what I think is going to happen is that FIFA, this annual release, and maybe this lockdown is going to speed it up because we've had to, to stop a lot of these, these sports seasons is what we're going to do is we're going to see FIFA become a single game, probably called FIFA Online. You pay a monthly uh, subscription, 
And as part of that, they'll probably give you some uh, loot boxes, some of this, some of whatever, but you pay £10 each month, and each year you pay the DLC for the new version of the game. And I believe that is where they're going. But guess what? If that happens, just like these trading card games, you will no longer, or the cards as part of these trading card games and these packs, you will no longer own the game either. It's all about operational expenditure. No longer is it capital expenditure. You buy something once, you keep it for five years. Oh, no, 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 no. EA wants you coming back time and time and time again. And that, Daryl, has been what's grinding my gears. Have I still got well, you, Daryl? All I can say is... Yeah, <laughs> I yeah. thought I lost you then. Yeah, yeah. I had... No, I was muted because I was eating food. Oh, well, thank you very much for muting yourself. <laughs> and, I was, and I was eating probably oat bars, and they are fucking impossible to eat. <laughs> really fucking... Oh, funny enough... Coming from my mouth. <laughs> I ate three of those before we came on uh, and did the show. So thank you very much for not eating that and, and making fine. me listen to it. I was like... I'm... Yeah, no, you would have killed yourself. You would have got halfway through and you go, life not worth living, got a gun, put it in your mouth. No, I, I couldn't. So, yeah, I could so, not uh, have talked about what Andrew Wilson has done to gaming and listened to you chewing at the same time without topping myself. It, it just wouldn't yeah. have been possible. But I was going to say, you, you, have to come, you have to buy food every week, so why can't you buy FIFA every week? It's like, you know what I mean? No football is <laughs> life, isn't it? So no football, no life. No football, no life. Got to buy food, got to buy FIFA picks. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, with that logic, though, I wouldn't be surprised if that's what EA comes out and says. You know, just like bread, you need to keep buying it because it goes out of date and FIFA goes out of date because we keep fucking changing it and we keep wanting you to exactly. buy more of it. <laughs> so just like but food. Oh, also, well, they've yeah. got to pay for Anthem and that disaster to really do all that. So but that's the thing. They're saying about the cost of the games. FIFA's the same game every single bloody year. They just change who they pick. You know, change a heck of a lot of it, do they? It's not like they're no. remaking the same game. They no. just change a little bit. Of, so who are they kidding? Fuck off, EA, you fucking cunts. Piss off. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And the fact that only, I think it was a week ago, maybe a little bit more, they had one of their employees come out and do like an AMA or something like that or, or a statement. We said no, he doesn't yeah. understand why people think that everyone that works at EA are bad guys. And it's like, well, unfortunately, you work for fucking EA. <laughs> they are the worst fucking company in the world. All they care about is profits, but they try to act like they care about the gamers and they're fucking killing the industry. Killing it. All they care about is the bottom line. Exactly, it's and that, they're sweet, sweet, Mike. It's that 2% growth for shareholders that just is just killing everything. It's ridiculous. But they're, but they're growing exponentially, though. It's not 2% growth for shareholders. They're growing 20% year on year, and it's all yeah, because of microtransactions. The shareholders always want more, don't they? They go, yeah, we well, do yeah. 20% year, we want 20% next year, and you're like, what's well, unsustainable? Yeah. Can't I've, keep... No, no, it is sustainable. What you do is you open a casino. That's what you do. And you, you open it in the guise of being a game and you advertise it towards children using an, in, uh, you know, an intellectual property like Star Wars, for example, that fucking Disney owns. And then you set up a casino roulette type uh, function inside of the game. And if people don't use it, guess what? You're not going to be as good as your friends. And 
I don't need to tell you, we all have been there. Anybody listening to this that's been a gamer, when was the, the, the highest level of stress you ever experienced of a gamer? It was when you were a kid. It was when you couldn't do something or somebody had an unfair advantage. That's when you would stress out. So, of course, and, and how do they build these things? All nice bright colours. And every time you sign into something, the first thing they do is tell you about all the great new packs you've got and all the great new things you can do with them. Head over there now, kids. Spend all your parents' fucking money. It needs to stop. It's ridiculous. Yeah, and the fact that we live in a world where, we, where a company can post profits of a billion dollars in a quarter from microtransactions... From charging, not producing anything. No, exactly. They've already fucking made it. They've just hidden it behind a wall. That's all they've done. They've said we've already made this. It's already in the game. The effort has already been done. But if you want it, no, we're not just going to give it to you. And that's the worst part about these loot boxes. It's not like they're letting you buy certain aspects that you want. No, they're saying to you, we will give you the chance of getting it, the chance. When actually you got no fucking chance, no chance whatsoever. It needs to stop. And as I said, I am not going to stop talking about this. I'm not necessarily going to talk about it every week as a whole segment, but I am I am not going to keep quiet about this. Something needs to be done. And we're in this lockdown time, though, and when we come out of this, the economy is going to be in the fucking toilet. People aren't going to have the disposable income to even buy the bread that we were talking about. And yet we're going to allow companies like EA to still force people into spending money that they do not have. And it's money for old rope. Just give us the fucking... I'll tell you what, yeah, I've got a great idea. You want all of our money. You want us to stay with us. Drop your microtransactions. Get rid of your loot boxes. Go for the subscription model. Go for it. I'll, I'll get on board. But remove microtransactions. Just say, come with us and you pay one fee and that's it. We will not charge you anymore. And if you really have to have loot boxes, just have cosmetic ones only. So at least that way everybody can compete the same. Even though, as I've said, I am not on board with even cosmetic ones. Because I think, again, you're building a world of the haves and the have-nots. And that should not fucking exist in gaming. Now, on that note, Daryl, things that shouldn't exist, I believe we've brought back Top of the Flops. Yes, it now exists once again. It's top it's of the flops. And well, talking more about meant, spending a lot I, of money this week. I, I was going to say quickly, I more meant the product itself. That is the top of the flops shouldn't <laughs> exist. <laughs> All right, Daryl. So I see that you've uh, you put together a, a new top of the flops. This one's a, a Daryl-led one. What's it on, Daryl? Yes, this is a Daryl-led one. It's about guns and fucking roses. A lot of fellow few because I must admit I got a little bit worried. I know that this is the home version of the show. We're off kilter. We're swearing. I'm having cigarettes while we're doing this. We don't give a fuck. But when you first suggested this, you literally gave me a chill from my entire body because you said, "Gary, the top of the flops we're going to talk about this week is Chinese democracy." And I thought, no fucking way, not, not a clue. We'll have all of our internet shut off. We'll never be able to produce anything again. They just no. We'll, we'll, our lives will be over as we know it. And you went, what are you talking about, Gary? I'm talking about the Guns N' Roses album, Chinese Democracy. And honestly, I wiped enough sweat off my brow that I could have filmed, filled a swimming pool with it. 
So thank God we're talking about Guns N' Roses. <laughs> yes, we are. We're talking about Guns N' Roses, the Chinese democracy. So we start off in 1993. Top five rock albums of 1993. Number one, Inutro, Nirvana. Number two, Verses by Pearl Jam. Number three, and a, a favourite of everybody, like you ask people what's their favourite album of 1993, everyone's going to say this one. A Pocket Full of Kryptonite by, of course, the legendary The Spin Doctors. That's a joke, by the way, Gary. No, I was going to say. I was like, I have no idea what you're talking about right now. Uh, but I am, even though I can't see you, I am starting to hear when you're being glib. So uh, it's, 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 it's coming. I'm getting it. Uh, number four, Siamese Dream by one of my favourite bands, The Smashing Pumpkins. And at number five, The Spaghetti Instant by Guns N' Roses. But that's it, Tim. Let's sort of the how we are in 93, the Guns N' Roses, who were the, one of the biggest bands in the world, their 93 album, Spaghetti Incident, only got to number five. That does say a lot, actually. I, I was quite surprised when you sent me this list. Whether they, whether they knew it or not, by the end of 1993, Guns N' Roses, the most dangerous band in the whole entire world, were over. <gasps> Just having finished their longest tour, in, one of the longest tours in history, and released a so-called album that was little more than a collection of covers and scraps from the cutting room floor. They were done. That was spaghetti and It wasn't a real album. It was like a covers album. And like oh, a right. few like odd songs. It had some cover albums. The, the bassist Duff McCain sang a couple of them. It was really thrown together. It was it was rubbish. It was one of the worst albums. If you talk about the reason that that's not a top of the flop for is because why it did sort of flop. They didn't cost them anything. They just you know what I mean? It took them about two days to make it and they just shit out. So, oh, so they used the EA. Model it wasn't then. very good. Exactly. Yeah. That was just like, oh, we'll just do a couple of covers and we'll, we got a couple. Well, we did that song. We never released it. We've put that on there as well. The fact that the band, who at this time was made up of the original members, slash, no last name, Duff McCang, Axel Rose, and the newer members, Matt Stronum, Gibby Clark, and Dizzy Reed, were all still alive after that crazy tour was some kind of a miracle. They just finished the uh, Usual Illusion tour it took two, two and a half years to get through it and it was a tour that would destroy the likes of me and you just through the sheer force of access that it was you know involved in it well, uh, and when you say force it, of access are we talking women excess. drugs I mean, alcohol ex- yeah, excess uh, I said access I meant excess <laughs> well, or, so what you it was a Freudian slip what you meant was through the sheer access to excess that was afforded to them. Yeah, yeah oh yeah that's clear exactly what I said yeah <laughs> that's exactly what you said yeah, <laughs> yeah. I said you could call it the most dangerous tour in the world referring back to them being the most dangerous band in the world and you might be right during the endless chaos that saw the band play 223 shows let that sink in for a minute 223 shows I dance around with my son in the living room for five minutes and I feel like I'm going to have a coronary. I couldn't do 220 shows. Yeah, and it was over 27 countries. It sparked two riots. Saw James Hatfield, the frontman of Metallica, suffer third-degree burns from an on-stage pyro and they enjoyed every single vice possible and seemingly impossible. Now, this tour was so large that they went on another tour with uh, the Metallica where right. Joe Hatfield was the front man inside that so they went they did the usual illusion tour for a year stopped did 27 shows with uh, Metallica and then went back to the usual illusion tour it was that big they had another tour inside of it how's that for crazy how's that for just that is mania? insane that is insane exactly right so 
Now, at the end, this bunch of druggy retrobates from LA, well, while they were still a band, a rock band, no, the rock band. The rock band. Inside yeah. they knew that, yeah, yeah, the, the rock band, the most dangerous band in the world, the Guns and Fucking Roses, everyone who knew knew Guns and Roses, they were over. They, their hearts weren't in anymore. They had just finished. They were gone. They had nothing more to give. But Axel Rose, the lead singer, he had something more to give. He had an egotistical monster inside of him that was going to consume the whole band and eat them alive. <laughs> One of the questions that I, I did want to ask um, is, were you actually a Guns N' Roses fan? Uh, yeah, oh, yeah, big time. In 1991 or 92, I was... A massive Guns N' Roses fan. That was sort of my first entry to rock music. I was a bit of a late starter with, because you hear some people go, oh yeah, I was into like, I started getting into rock music when I was like 12 or 13. I was like 14 or 15 when I first started getting into rock music. Wow, there's a, there's a huge difference uh, there, Daryl. My mate had, a, yeah, exactly. My mate had Use Your Illusion 1 and 2 and he gave, them, you know, he gave them to me and I was listening to them all the time. That was sort of the first thing that got me into rock music because they swore and they were like, you know what I mean, and sexy and like, oh yeah, we do lots of drugs and everything. And that. So a 15-year-old boy, you love that sort of thing. Especially oh yeah, that bad boy swearing, like, Oh yeah, they were swearing. Funny enough, now I'm yeah. estranged from my dad. I hadn't seen him since I was six and I saw him in, when I was like 34, 35, we sort of got yeah. back in touch. Mm. And his favourite band? Guns N' Roses. Guns N' Roses. Uh, yeah. yeah, I was like, that's funny, isn't it? Uh, and he liked his rock music, and I, that's kind of strange because no one in my family likes music. My, my family are not a sort of musical no. family. But they like no. music, but they're not into it as much as I'm into it. They're just like, oh, yeah, they like the songs they like. But I was into rock music, and none of my family are like that. And it was so funny that when I met my dad... He was into his rock music and his favourite band was Guns N' Roses. I was just like, that is so weird. Is there something genetic, this, some genetic disposition that makes you like... Well, I would music? say that you could be onto something there, but then I have an almost parallel story for you. My dad is into rock music and ska music, but just like you, I've been estranged from him since I was six. And yet my stepdad, your uncle, he likes... You know, your, your Paul Youngs, your 80s kind of like power ballads and crooners and yes, things like that. The hours have got terrible taste in music, that's what I was... Yeah, well, I wish you hadn't said that because I was about to say, and I have taken his taste in music. <laughs> so yes. so, so music. for me, nurture is where I got my taste in music, but for you, it seems nature was where you got your taste in music. But well, then, funny enough, oh, one of the oh, things my mum likes... One of the things my mum likes when we were young and she was arguing with my father all the time, mm. she used to take us out in the car. So she's like, oh, your dad needs to chill down. We'll just go out in the car and go for a ride. And when we were driving about, she used to put some music on, but she liked the big ballads. Yeah. Uh, Weathering Heights. You know Weathering Heights by... Yeah, um, Kate Bush. Yeah, by Kate Bush. She's listening to and she's telling us the story behind it. So she got me interested in songs with stories. Yeah, which obviously so, is the Weathering Heights story. It's the Heathcliff and... Um... Exactly. So, so I like uh, lyrics with a story. Like, there's a cover of Vidalita by uh, a clown. Oh right, okay. I don't know who that is. A seven foot clown called Puddles. 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 Picky party. His name is. <laughs> right. And he does okay. his cover of uh, Coldplay's Vidalita. Right. And it's amazing. And I listened to the original. I was like, I've never heard this song before. I was like, it's a Coldplay song. I listened to the original Coldplay song. I was like, this is trash. But his version. Of it is so great, and it's a story about the uh, the King of France, King Louis Fifteenth, I think it is, just right. before he was guillotined and killed by the revolutionaries. 
Is it ex- no, they were killed ex- by the... Excommunicated, or there's a, there's a title for ex- when you... It's something about it, isn't it? We get it? your head cut off with a guillotine. Yeah, X used to have a head on your shoulders. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Exactly. But also, but also in uh, 1993, the music uh, landscape was a lot different to when Guns N' Roses died. When Guns N' Roses died, they were the biggest thing in town. This glam sort of LA rock sort of scene was happening. They called it yeah. hair metal. Oh, right. You had like Motley Crue, Skid Row... You know, everyone was wearing skinny jeans, headbands. Yes, I know what you're talking. Yeah, I've heard that before. I've heard that expression. Eyeliner. Yeah, exactly. But then, in the meantime, between the start of their tour and which was '91 and '93, Nirvana came along and blown all that away. Nirvana were the opposite to them. They're all just unwashed, long, unkept hair. Do you know what I mean? Like, not all about the 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 sex side of it and the sex appeal. It was all about the. No, being like introverts. lumberjacks. Well, Guns N' Roses exactly, were extroverts yeah, and Nirvana were introverts. Yeah, we're introverts, yeah, exactly. So that's what's happened in the meantime. So when, as you said, as I when I read out, like Nirvana, uh, Bush, uh, Pearl Jam, uh, the um, Smashing Pumpkins, they're all they're all grunge bands and they're all in the top five. Yeah, and didn't you actually have to remove a few bands to to come up with that where you didn't consider them things like Meatloaf and things like that where you were like, that's not rock, so you removed it from your top ten? Yeah. One of the funny things in his top ten is nearly every single year, U2 two in the top ten, they released an album and every year I'm talking about virtually, and I was just like, <laughs> no, nah, I don't count U2 as rock music. I don't count do, U2 do, as music. I was going to say, do you even count them as music? <laughs> Not I know one. they started the U2 movement. I, I know exactly, that, which yeah. is where, where they... <laughs> <laughs> they yeah. well, it's where they, where they forced themselves... Before, yeah, we? yeah, we did. Yeah, I, I come up with that joke before. But for those that didn't hear one of our earlier um, jokes, it was, I've never been me too'd, but I have been you too'd. And that was when Bono stuck his, <laughs> stuck his, his material inside my phone without my permission. But, um, exactly, <laughs> or something along those lines. But <laughs> exactly, that is what happened. But okay, from what I understand, Nick I don't understand the the landscape too much. By 1993, Guns and Roses and, and the product that they were producing was becoming old hat. But nobody told Axl Rose. Have, have no. I got a, a good picture of it so far? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the rest of the band, while well, they were all still in Guns and Roses, even I'm saying if they didn't know it or not. Like something in the back of their mind, they were finished. I mean, it was like it was time to call it a day, but none of them really did. Which brings us to 1997. So four years later, okay. And yep. the top five, the top five, top five rock albums of '97 are OK Computer by Radiohead, which I believe you love, don't you? Oh yeah, one of my favourite albums. Yep, uh, Urban Hymns by The Verve, which I actually quite like that album. Uh, Be Here Now by Oasis, one of the worst uh, albums ever made. <laughs> you are. Is it, no, you're all pulp, and, uh, which means you're anti-Oasis, is that right? No, 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 I was a massive Oasis fan. Oh, was you? Just, oh, don't right. like, just do not like Be Here Now, it's crap. <laughs> <laughs> right, fair enough. <laughs> there album. you go, then, people, there you go. <laughs> uh, Reload by Metallica. Oh, OK, that's interesting. That's in there. And Secret Samadhi. Don't say that last one by Live, who are also one of the worst bands to ever exist. I would call it Secret Samadhi, um, but if they're one of the worst bands that ever existed, uh, maybe I'll I'll go check them out. Might be my kind of music. Yeah, they're they're awful. Right, they're like uh, post-grunge rubbish. 
Oh, yeah, no, I'm definitely not interested in that then. By August of 97, bassist Duff McCang, it had enough. The quoting from his book, so, so, from his book, so Easy and Other Lives, which I read it, it's a very good read. Oh, okay. Uh, Guns, Guns had been paying rent on the studio for three years now, from 1994 to 97, and still hadn't recorded a single song. Wow. Three years so, rent in the studio, not one song. No, so I say, no, so from 93 to now 97, nothing had happened. As I said, they were dead. They just didn't know it. They were walking zombies. Yeah. But it wasn't the only problem that uh, and I were facing. Slash, who was the masked guitarist, who was responsible for all the riffs and the solos from uh, and favourite songs. Uh, Sweet Child of Mine, that do 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 bit at the beginning. Oh, that, that sounded Slash. perfect. I, I yeah, actually sounded, thought for a second you played <laughs> Slash then. <laughs> so, I was like, that's not anything like it at all. It wasn't anywhere near. <laughs> <laughs> it, didn't, it didn't sound anything like it. <laughs> but that beginning guitar intro, on the beginning of Sweet Child of Mine, that's iconic. That's thanks to Slash. He was that iconic guitar- lead guitarist, you know what I mean? Yeah. He's the reason. His solos were so... They used to have like four Slash solos per show of uh, of uh, from Slash. That's why we're like, when the Varna lot come along, they sort of went, eh, we're not going to do solos because they're too extravagant and the two sort of thing. That's because it was like being anti-Slash, anti-Guns and Roses. Ah, uh, so, anyway, so the School of Rock scene makes sense now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So he'd left in 96... Because he'd had an argument with Axel about um, they'd fired he'd, uh, Axel had fired the uh, rhythm guitarist Gibby Clark because he wasn't an original member he was just sort of a hired hand. Yeah. So he had been fired, and Axel had replaced him with his childhood friend Paul Tobias. Right. Okay. And uh, Slash wasn't the only member to have a problem with Tobias. Uh, the drummer Matt Strohm, he was fired in. Uh, he was also a hired hand, so he was fired by Axel as well in '97 because he had an argument over the guitarist. What the band, a lot of the people in the band thought was that, uh, oh, Tobias isn't here for his musical skill. He's just here to back up Axel. So if Axel says anything, he's got another man to. He's got a guaranteed take, vote. You know what I mean? So. Yeah. So if they're in he's a got guaranteed vote, yeah. So. Yeah. So this 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 band, this as I say, they were the biggest band, one of the biggest bands of all time. They were a messy bunch of drunks and druggies. They were all over the place. They were lost, but they was always been together now. But now, no, no, no longer. Nearly all the original members had gone, either by burning out or by pushed out by Axel for his overflayed ego. And now Guns N' Roses were little more than just Axel Rose and the hired guns. Yes, Duff knew. Now was the time to leave the band, the city of LA, the rock and roll circus. He would soon move back to the, his hometown of Seattle, restart some old friendships, restart his old band, restart his, his life, and maybe even start a family. So that's it. They're all gone. The only person left now in the band is Axel and the uh, keyboardist uh, Dizzy Reed, who was also a higher hand and not an original member. So they're the only two left. By 97, everyone else is gone. Well, so it really is, as you said now, it's guns, uh, or it's hired guns and roses. Well, yeah, well, guns and roses, the roses is Axel Rose. Well, yeah, of course it is, yeah. <laughs> yeah it makes perfect sense. So it is now just yeah, so hired guns and roses. So it's guns and roses, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so anything you want to ask me about that, Gary? Anything about 97? Well, yeah, because as we know, I would have been a, a wee nipper at the time. Um, I don't think I would be 10. Well, I wouldn't have been 10 by then. I can do simple maths. So what was the... <laughs> <laughs> what was, the, what was, what was the, the landscape of the music? So we know what it was like in 1993. We're now four years removed from that. No singles released. No yeah. albums released. Hemorrhaging money. 
band members leaving left, right and centre. But what was the, the rock scene like? What was the landscape like? Well, as you saw from the top 10, uh, OK Computer by Radiohead, a British band. Oasis, a British band. Verve, a British band. So three British bands in the top five. All so Britpop was at its height. This is the big sort of time for Britpop, 97. Yeah, yeah about 97. Yeah, I was 19. It was, it was, it's a, it crested, it was on a crest, it was coming down a little bit, but Britpop has sort of taken over the world, as you could see by the thing like uh, uh, OK Computer by Radiohead. They'd gone through their rock phase and they were turning to more experimental electronica phase by 97. Yeah. This is how fast the, mu the music world used to travel so fast. So many, so much stuff used to happen over a couple of years. From 90, you know what I mean? Guns of Roses started in 91. They'd become the, you know, that's when they sort of went on become the biggest band in the world by 97 not only had they'd finished but Dunch had finished and Britpop had taken over and still nothing had happened since 90 well, not even 93 I don't even count uh, Spaghetti Incident as a real album if you count that off Usual Illusion 1 and 2 they came out in 91 so really it's 97 it's 6 years the music has, landscape has changed 3 times over and still Guns N' Roses haven't put anything down haven't released a record well, but then if we're looking at the quote, um, I've forgotten which band member you, you said it was, but his quote where he said they'd been recording or paying for the recording studio for three years and hadn't recorded a single track. So it sounds like they didn't, it's not just the case they hadn't released anything, they didn't have anything to release. And the music landscape had changed dramatically since since their last full album release. And now they have none of the original band members. I mean, for me, I know we're yeah. still only in 1997 at the moment and we're fast approaching 2000, but I'm listening to that thinking, how could anybody have thought that what was to come was going to be good? You know, and that, I suppose that is often the question with Top of the Flops, isn't it? Is who yeah. <laughs> who thought this was a good idea? You know, like, <laughs> who? So, okay, so that was 1997. I think we got a pretty good understanding of the state of the band now, who is in the band, who's no longer, well, nobody's left in the band now, and the, the landscape, the music. So we're going to fast forward a little bit now. Yeah, we're going to the year 2000. Let's all meet up in the year 2000. Talking about pulp. Hey, <laughs> yeah, 2000 yeah. There. yeah. A little bit of a rendition for you. Right, so... The top five rock albums of 2000, number yep. one by the Beatles. The Beatles had a number one album in the year 2000. What? <laughs> that was their, that, there was an, it was an anthology album made up of all bits and pieces, different remixes, different versions of songs they'd already released, stuff they'd found on the cutting room floor. I think it had an original um, John Lennon song on it. They found some bits and pieces that John recorded, recorded the music by it and put his vocals over the top of it, if I remember correctly. You you might be. I honestly can't help you with that one. It's, it's a, but it's it surprising it nonetheless. Yeah, I owned that album. It was a really good album, actually. It got me really into the Beatles, that one. Anyway, so number two is... <laughs> <laughs> Look. By everyone's favourite band, The Limp Bizkit. In fact, yeah. it wasn't called Erg. It's actually called... And I, I just didn't want to type this out. I just This name just makes my brain crawl. I hate it so much. Chocolate Starfish and the Hot Dog Flavoured Water which has to go down as the worst name for anything in the world. Uh, yeah, or Daryl. You know, like that. I think it's probably oh, yeah. unequal fitting. <laughs> and number three, we've got uh, Parachutes by Coldplay. Okay, interesting that Coldplay have made it in there. 
Yep. Uh, number four, we've got Crush by Bon Jovi. Bon Jovi, back in the fold, back at number four. What? That's crazy. <laughs> I was actually going to mention to you that you talk about, you know, like the influence from your dad. When I was younger, uh, apparently the only thing that would get me to sleep was my parents playing Bon Jovi. It's the only way I would. But it probably speaks okay. a lot to my music taste as well. Yeah, exactly. Funny enough, I don't know why I included them and not included you two or lots of other bands when they, or Aerosmith were just as bad, but who cares? You know what it is? It's because you you got a little bit of a soft spot for Bon Jovi. That's what it yeah, is. No, John Boy. Bon yeah, old John Boy. Yeah. Number five is Biannual by Pearl Jam. So Pearl Jam back again in the yeah. top five. And also... Actually, uh, Radiohead could have been at number two, but they released Kid A, which is like a more of an electronica, electronica album. Not really a rock album. It was their most experimental, their most electronic sounding album. But if I had included that, that would have been at number two. But and we, I can't. It, I can't. I just can't do it. No, no, because then, then you would have lost Biannual by uh, Pearl Jam and, and, you know, and, and you would have been cheating yourself. I mean, you, you cheated yourself by putting Bon Jovi in there, so I understand. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, I don't know, I don't know what I did that to myself for. So where, where, do we, where do we go from there then, Daz? The Millennium Shrug. By the beginning of the 21st century, Axel finally succeeded in putting that together a fairly consistent lineup. So by the year 2000, he'd have people come in and come out. He'd hired other people from other bands who left to go on tour with other people. So he had a hard time trying to get a sort of stable lineup. Yeah. But by the year 2000, he'd finally managed to get it. made up. Dizzy Reed is still there. He's still in the band. I, I noticed that. He's, he's hanging on in there. Not bad for a keyboardist. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. I said he'd joined the band. I can't say during Usual Illusion. There's too many U's in it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> during Usual Illusion. <laughs> yeah, during Usual Illusion. Um, the guitarist and Axel's childhood friend, Tom Tobi- uh, Paul Tobias, is still there. He's still nice. hanging on as well. Um, now, this guy, this guy's crazy. He's coming up. His name's Buckethead. Oh, wow. And he wears, Why is uh, he called Buckethead? he wears a KFC bucket on his head when he plays live and a white mask so you can't see his face. Oh, he's crazy. He is crazy. Exactly. But he is a, a brilliant guitar player. He's so, super inventive. He releases four like solo albums a year. He's a maniac, this guy. He really is like a, he's a genius when it comes to guitar playing. He's also a multi-instrumental as well, so he just goes, he's so good at music. Oh, I might have to check him out then. Looks can be deceiving, as they say. Yeah. Exactly, yeah, exactly. You'd see that if that's a joke, but the geezer was not a joke at all. Next up, we've got another keyboardist. I don't know why they needed two keyboardists. They're a rock band. They should have no keyboardists. <laughs> that's what I was thinking. That's what I said. I was surprised but, um, Dizzy Reed was holding on. Because yeah, exactly. why is there a keyboardist in a rock band? <laughs> okay. yeah, exactly. Another keyboardist in a rock band. This one's uh, Chris Pittman. He was also a multi-instrumental as well. He could play some other things. He could he programmed some bass for them and does some other stuff. So, you know what I mean? When they say keyboardist, they mean like, oh, he doesn't do symphony, knows how to do sequences and computers and things like that because this is the year 2000. So yeah, by this exactly. time, lot, you could do a lot more things on the computer than you could before. Then you've got a drummer, uh, Brian Manataya. Manita? He's also a multi- yeah, Manita, yeah. He's also a multi-instrumentalist. So you can see, like, although these people, they are very good at... They're very good musicians and maybe not so much in rock bands on their own. They're the sort of solo guys. They're like, you bring them into like, oh, we need someone who can really play this drum, you know, this drumming really well. We need someone to do it. You bring these guys. They're sort of like musician journeymen 
Roland, here they are, like, in a band, you know what I mean? So yeah, I understand. Well, and that's why you could keep it, that's why you had a lot of guys in the band, that's why they stayed there for, because as long as you keep paying them, they'll stay with you, because they haven't got a band to go off and play with. Yeah, exactly. Finally, we've got the bassist from the alt-rock pioneers, the replacements, uh, Tommy Stilton. Now, I'm assuming that probably so, means something to, to music fans. It doesn't much to me, although I am looking at his picture. Oh, yeah, yeah, the replacements were big. Yeah, they were like a big... The replacements were one of these four people. They say they won the band to define what all rock was back in the day. So oh, okay. That's sort of a poor sort of band. Yeah. There's a lot of Chinese democracy movements, and it's something that there's a lot of talking about. And it's something that nice, would be nice to see. It could be just like an ironic statement. I don't know. I just like the sound of it. Axel Rose on the album title. Okay, so... Um, yeah, what it makes about as much sense as Axl Rose makes. It, it exactly. is just a bunch of waffle. It's like there's a lot of Chinese <laughs> yeah, exactly. democracy movements, and if it's something that there's a lot of to talk about, and it's something that will be nice to see. What would be nice to see? What are you talking about? You <laughs> fucking idiot. What? What? This is the most nonsensical thing I've ever seen written in front of me in my life. <laughs> you know, I, I, Jesus Christ. I mean, like, I, even he says, he gets halfway through his own sentence, and it was, he goes, it could all just be like an ironic statement. Like, you're an ironic band at the moment from the sounds of it. It's like, I don't know, I just like the sound of it. Yet nobody knows, and guess what? Nobody likes the sound of it. But sorry, carry on. I didn't mean to jump in then, but what a moronic statement. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so, as I said, he succeeded to get a band together, but what he'd found to do was get an album together. He'd called it Chinese Democracy, he'd announced it to the world, everyone's on tenderhooks waiting for it. Geffen wanted to release it in 1999, but that had been and gone. It's 2000, still not out. But there's a lot of movement in Chinese democracy, Daryl. You know, like, it's, yeah, it's something that yeah, there's, there's, there's going to be a no... lot to, to talk about. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No movement when recording this song, these albums, I tell you that. Well, <laughs> yeah, not in 2000, exactly. it wasn't. No. So, so, so there were a lot of reports coming through the rock press through various people. Axel Rose, his friend, um, who was in Skid Row, Sebastian uh, Back. Lots of people saying lots of different things. And they were saying, like, oh, um, I mean, like, he Axel was sort of lost it by this point. He just his ego had come overblown. He was trying to release his perfect album, but he wasn't really even even involved in writing after. But most of the time, he just let their musicians go in there, jam out a few tracks and everything, and then they'd record them onto CD and send it to him. And he'd listen to the CD and pick the tracks that he'd want. He wasn't even there to help them record anything. And what's so so he was like, so he was like trying to find what the sound was. So he was like, oh, we're going to do a trilogy of albums because they'd had like so many songs recorded that he could use. Oh, uh, it's going to be a more industrial rock album. You know what industrial rock is, Gary? Not a clue. Uh, Nine Inch Nails. You know Nine Inch Nails, the band. I do. Yeah, the the, the original version of Hurt that Johnny Cash Yeah, exactly, covered. yeah. That's industrial rock music. Ah, it's okay. It sound a little bit more like that and less like Guns N' Roses were. Ah. But also in 2000, he said, I'm going to scrap all the recordings we've done so far and I'm going to re-record them using the new technology that it's about now. Oh. <laughs> Doesn't this... This sounds a it's... little bit similar to uh, another Top of the Flops we did where uh, Iron Storm, where they decided, ah, there's some new technology. Let's scrap everything we've already done, exactly. delay releasing it, and work on some new technology before we actually know whether people like the stuff we made on the old technology first. Exactly. It's supposed to have come out in the year 
Why do people this stupid get that much money? I don't understand it, Daryl. I don't think I'm a stupid man. I don't think I'm an idiot. Yeah, I haven't got any fucking money. Give me Axl Rose's money. I'll make you a better album. Jeez, I can't even fucking sing. (laughs) It was supposed to come out in 1999, and it's 2000, and he's talking about re-recording everything. They hadn't even got any songs. This is flipping... This is... The art, this, this is you can imagine how far his ego's gone, how overblown, how like this is crazy. It's just reminded me a little bit of um, Awesome Wells as well, with the uh, you'll appreciate me when I'm when I'm dead or whatever it's called. Uh, well, that was his film, oh, yeah, he just kept, film, yeah, kept making it over and over and over again because he was trying to make that that perfection and and essentially his air quotation marks because I, I I don't really want to put this in with Axel Rose, but his genius. Awesome Wells one drove him insane because he really believed he could create perfection, and it seems that Axl Rose's idiocy did the exact same thing. Which well, is ego. His ego's overtaken all of him. He's everyone else is left. He's got the band to himself. His ego is just myanical at this point. He just can't think straight. He can't see the forest for the trees. All he thinks is, "I'm Axl Rose. I'll show everyone." Everyone thinks Guns and Roses was all of us together. No, it's just me. If I get a band together, I can tell them what to play, and I'll release the best album. But it wasn't going that way. So, no, no. As we said, 2000. He's planning to record it all again. Now we're going to skip to, and this is our longest skip in the whole thing. We're going to go to 2008. What? Wait, hang on a second. Yeah, we're going to 2008. No, 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 no. Hold on a second, Daryl. So the last. True album released by Guns N' Roses, which, if you ask Axel, was just his band anyway, is 1991. He eventually yes. manages to piece together a band in 1999 and is supposed to release Chinese Democracy. He's talking about it. There's lots of movements, remember? You know, it's going to be really interesting. Misses the 1999 release date, scraps everything in 2000 because there's new technology, and we're now jumping forward to 2008, and without you saying anything, I'm assuming the album still hasn't been released. Top five rock albums of 2008. Number one, Viva La Vida by Coldplay. Mentioned that earlier. Number two, Metallica's back with Death Magnetic. Number three, Black Ice by ACDC. Seen a lot of like old school rock albums coming out this year. Metallica, yeah. ACDC. Maybe Radiohead are back again. That every year we do this, Radiohead have released an album. They only release an album every so long. <laughs> so in Rainbows by Radiohead, which uh, was a little bit more electronic, but it sort of got, got back to being a little bit more rocky. And number five, the masked men of new metal, Slipknot, they're back. Number five. Now, Chinese Democracy did come out in 2008 and it got to number nine in the charts. Oh, it did come out. He finally released it in 2008. Yeah, this top top five rock albums is for the worldwide release, not just America, all all over the world. I found a site that told you everything and Chinese Democracy was at number nine. In the rock, not in the albums, because if you look at the albums, it's like number 45 or something, but in the rock chart, number nine. Chinese Democracy... It's finally come out, and uh, this I'm going to run some numbers to you. This is what Chinese Democracy took. It took 17 different musicians, <laughs> 11, 11 years, 42 producer, engineer, mixers, and assistants, 15 record recording studios, 13 million dollars, and it cost Cadbury Swepps, the company at the time that owned Dr Pepper. 300, uh, 300 million cans of Dr Pepper. And we'll get to that later on why that cost no. that for. That is so, unbelievable. 
That's the one thing I just want to add to that quickly. I can't believe those numbers. <laughs> exactly. So by 2008, things didn't look so great for the Frankenstein uh, Guns and Roses. Geffen had well and truly closed the uh, ever-flowing money tab. They said, enough's enough. We've been waiting for this album to come out. You still haven't got it. So in, in 2007, that's it. They went, no more money for you. If you want to finish this, if you if you've want anything more to you do, you pay for it yourself. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. On the new and shiny social media sites, because this, this is 2008, so social media is when this is born. This is the born of Facebook. Twitter started coming into being. MySpace had been around. And on those things, the album release been, ever been released would come a joke, like, oh, uh, you owe me that money. Oh, yeah, I'll give you that money when Chinese democracy has been released. Oh, no, I can't <laughs> wait that long. That's going to be another 15 years. <laughs> things like that, you know what I'm saying? Come, yeah, yeah. And the release of Chinese democracy would become a joke. It'd become a punchline. The blogs would be putting on the drum. Yeah, exactly. There were blogs that were just reporting on the drama surrounding its imminent release and they'd become its own quite industry. There's so much further, so much talk about it that you could start a blog and it did nothing but take the mickey out of Chinese democracy and you could make some money out of it. You know what you could do? You it could, was such you could a start a podcast where you, you talk about all the uh, the rubbish that surrounded it. You should, you should do like an episode on it on a podcast. That'd be a good idea. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, it was such a joke, yeah, that it permeated the mainstream culture. That's how much of a joke it is. So Dr. Pepper had offered everyone in the US, except for Slash and Buckethead for some reason, a free can if the album had come out in 2008. That's how much of a joke it was. It was like, yeah, if it comes out in 2008, we'll, we'll offer everyone a free can. Because that's how much people didn't believe it was ever coming out. Oh, wow. Dr. Pepper didn't renege on this offer because the album had come out. So they did say, all right, then you can have your free Dr. Pepper. And they, the day they did it, their website crashed and not everyone got one. <laughs> Still, though, like, fair play to them. I mean, like, yeah, although it is a little bit funny, though, that Dr. Pepper's catchphrase, although maybe it came out after this, the one I remember is, Dr. Pepper, what's the worst that could happen? 300 million <laughs> cans have to be given away and Chinese democracy is released. <laughs> Exactly, well, possible. Funny enough, that same year, they sold off Dr. Pepper and spun it out into its own company. Oh. Don't know if that okay. had anything to do with it, but yeah, Cadbury Sweeps became Sweeps and Cadbury's on its own. Because I I, 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 I mean, I don't know why we're talking about Dr. Pepper ownership on this, but I was um, under the impression the Coca-Cola company now owned uh, Dr. Pepper. Coca-Cola owned the rights to release it in Europe, I think. Ah, it's, right. it's those things when you look at look at drink companies or uh, or food companies like confecting companies that the ownership is so long and twisted and it changes so much and they get bought and sold and twisted around so oh, much yeah. it's hard to find out who owns what but uh, well, all, but I like that sort of thing so I always look it up yeah no me me too but also I think there's a as time goes on there will be a pretty simple answer to all of those questions or, or to the question who owns it the answer in 20 years time will just be Disney yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Right, so, uh, a low Chinese democracy had become a joke. It hadn't been a joke for the remaining musicians, producers and engineers still working on the project. They'd spent 14 hours a day in the recording studio to get it just right. 14 hours a day? This is 2008. They should have finished this. Exactly. They still hadn't finished it. In, like Coming up to 2008, they hadn't finished it. One of the uh, mastering engineers, Bob Ludwig, had to create three different versions for uh, Axel to choose from. Wow. So he had to rec- 
called, he had to master it, Freedom Waste for Axel to listen to. And Axel's like, no, I don't like that one. I like that one. Uh, change that bit to that bit, that bit to that bit. This is how, it's, it's ridiculous. You don't spend that much time on an album. It's only going to cost $16. You can't keep spending this money on it. It's not, never, uh, it's never going to get finished. It's ridiculous. Uh, why, Axel? Why were you thinking this? But anyway, so by November the 23rd, 2008, it's finally finished. Finally out, finally going to be. That's it. This is it. This is his comeback. Guns and Roses. It's been eleven years, but here we are. Yeah, eleven years. Yeah. No. If you count it from, if you count it from two thousand and, uh, if you count it from ninety one, it's been. That's what I was thinking. Years. I was counting when you said earlier. You was like eleven years. I'm like, well, I would go back as ninety one, so seventeen years. That that is madness. It's eleven years since. Yeah. But they started started sort of recording Chinese Democracy in ninety seven, so but they hadn't released yeah. it, you know what I mean? So but so it was eleven years from conception to release, but they hadn't released anything. There was a four year before that when they did nothing. The most anticipated rock album in the history had been murdered by a thousand different jabs and body shots, including artwork that the artist wasn't committed to, but the colossal marketing blunder was a Tycaness. Tyson-esque knockout punch, Billboard 2018. Do you know what? <laughs> For our listeners of this, uh, will know that I often make many jibes about your lack of sporting knowledge. And I hadn't read that um, that whole paragraph in full. So when I got to the Tyson-esque yeah. knockout punch, I thought, wow, Daryl, that was absolutely on point. What a great, great bit of sort of boxing crossover on his head, a little you know, tip of the hat to me, and then I realised it was somebody else's quote. Yes, yeah, from Bill Ball looking back at the album in 2018. <laughs> yeah. So, so the album's been released. Everything's good, isn't it? Yeah, it's like, yes, it's been released. This is it. We're going to hit the big time. We're going to make all that money back. That's not what happened. So after the release, Axel just completely withdrew from public eye. He wouldn't give any interviews to the press. No one saw him. He didn't go around promoting it. He talked to a couple of different... Uh, forums uh, sprouted up because it's 2018 and it sort of started to jive but he hadn't gave actually any press until february of 2009 so november to february no one's seen either hair of axel what is he doing like everyone's been waiting for this album they've been waiting to see what axel was going to say the preview stream of this album was my space had got three million streams a new record at the time imagine that like an album oh, on yeah. MySpace got three million streams. That was like, at the time, that was amazing. It's like, people are like, oh, so when this album comes out, this is going to be a massive, isn't it? Three million streams is great. But when it released, it only reached number three in the US chart and in the number two in the UK. Ooh, that's a bit of a dampener. Yeah, for something you've waited that long and, and almost certainly pumped millions, well, we know we've pumped millions of pounds into, yeah, that's, that's not going to cut the mustard, as they say. Yeah, and uh, so Axel spent all this time releasing it. It's not really gone the way it is. He's lost so much money. He's lost all these friends. Guns N' Roses are virtually no more. This is an Axel solo record, really. This isn't Guns N' Roses. This is nothing. So, so we're now well, we're on to the aftermath. So it's come out. It's it's sort of done all right. We're not amazingly, yeah. But they said it's done all right, but that's not exactly the truth. Oh, okay. I see we just went off there. Right, so after the initial hyper died down, the sales of the albums hit the skids. Best Buy, the big sort of big box company in America, they yeah, we used to have point... them in the UK. Pre, pre yeah, they, we had them for a while. Yeah, and when they went bust, I went in and bought loads of stuff on special. Anyway, <laughs> 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 I bought like some the 
keys that are like uh, USB keys, but they're shaped like keys. Ah, and I, 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 like bought, um, I bought, I bought this, um, this, this uh, coffee coaster that was shaped uh, in the shape of uh, a CD, and it had this nice little um, like artwork on it called Chinese Democracy, and it looked just like a <laughs> CD. <laughs> Exactly, yeah. <laughs> they bought 1.3 million copies of it and they said they wouldn't return any of the unsold copies. Well, that was a big mistake. Yeah, exactly. By 2011, they were selling copies for $2. And so the album only ever ended up selling 614,000 copies in the US and they had 1.3 million. So how many did they have left? Well, I can do the so math. That's, <laughs> <million copies. laughs> that's 614 copies in the US. It wasn't just from Best Buy, that was from everywhere. Oh, from yeah, Walmart, of course. That was from... Sam Goody, yeah. that's from HMV or whatever the HMV of America is. So how many copies did they have left? They must have had at least... You dreads to think. I, I, honestly, crazy. I don't even want to think. I, I, I can All I can picture at the moment is the E.T. Atari situation. Somebody in Best Buy bought a, a, a big like quarry or something and you'll find a million Chinese democracy CDs buried one day. <laughs> exactly. Because when I was looking... In the future... In the future, when they discover it, they're probably going to look at it and first think, oh, it's an audio track that was detailing the Chinese government and all the bad things in Chinese democracy, and it got buried as part of some mass media control so nobody would ever hear it. Now, they're, they're right on one part. Nobody should ever hear it, um, but... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, when they listen to it, it's just an average-sounding rock album by a band <laughs> who was a complete spent force by that time. And they're, they're <laughs> listening to it again, and how so did you- they mass control people with this <laughs> yeah, exactly <laughs> how did that work so you can we could surmise that geffen never made their money back they'd pump god knows how much into this at least 10 million into this and you mean it never sold they only ever sold about 1.3 million copies worldwide so if you take all that they never made their money back no of course not and their time and all their wrangling of trying to get this so because I was looking at it and I was like, I remember this being a massive flop. And it's like, oh, it's sold 1.3 million copies. I thought, 2008, that's, that's that's not too bad, 1.3 million copies. Then I looked and I oh, no, but it cost 16 million. Oh, right, yeah, no, no, <laughs> it was a flop. Then. Yeah, definitely. Like, yeah, definitely. <laughs> like, oh, we only got to like, oh, right, yeah, so. So what is the lessons we can learn from this, Gary? That us record executives, me and you, we own a record company called I don't know. I can't think of the name of the top of my head. <laughs> Let's go with that. <laughs> Bodge Job Records. Yeah, Bodge Job Records. Yeah. So me and you, the top execs of Bodge Job Records, we can look back at this. So what can we learn, Gary? What can we learn? Well, what we learn is do not give an egotistical maniac infinitive funds to make a record, especially with all the people who made him an egotistical maniac who let him be there. He's ex ex-band members and already all left, already all gone, packed their bags and left the most dangerous band in the world. Well, yeah, I think that's a, a very... Although, I must admit, considering we are Bodge Job Records and this does sound like a Bodge Job album, you know, I don't know, maybe the lesson for us is we need to sign up Axel Rose. <laughs> yeah, and give him 50p and go, yeah, play the flute or something, I don't know. <laughs> 50p, play the flute. <laughs> So, oh, brilliant! So they went on tour after this. They went on tour, but they sort of it just sort of everything just fell apart after this. Yeah, Guns N' Roses virtually no more. There was never another album. But in about 2016, the original band did all reform. They did all come back together again. I was going to say so there that there is a silver line in this. 
Yeah, I was going to say that obviously I'm not a big music aficionado, but the whole time I'm listening to this and you were running through the band members that are left, and I'm like, I'm pretty certain that they're back together. And also, I have a very slight segue story to tell just off the back of this. Um, I was once okay. offered the opportunity to meet Slash, and uh, I used okay. to work uh, in London, and the building that I worked in... Um, Slash's management company were there and I knew his direct handler or whatever you want to call it and uh, we used to go out for cigarette breaks and we'd always talk and so on and so forth and he was in the building one day and he offered me to come up and meet with him and I said no I said because the truth be told is I'm probably the worst person to introduce to a musician because I don't know fuck all about music I was like so I'll just make a fool of myself Uh, and I didn't do it and do you know what year that was? What's the year was that? 2008. Oh, that's a... So I could have... Yeah, if I could go back in a time machine where I can only inhabit my own body, so like butterfly effect or something, I could go back to 2008 and talk to Slash and let him know how bad of a disaster Chinese democracy is going to (laughs) be. And he wouldn't have cared. He would have just smiled again, hopefully, Gabby, hopefully... Yeah, no, he would have gone, of course it's going to be. <laughs> it's like, I'm not involved in it, of course. Exactly. <laughs> we haven't released an album in 17 years. What do you think's going to happen? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I don't need a fucking time but, machine uh, me- to tell you this is fucked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but as I say, now, now they're sort of all back together, the original lineup, or most of the original lineup, and they've been touring the world, and people have said, yeah, they're pretty good. They've got obviously yeah, they're all in the fifties, so the magic's not completely completely there, but they're still going to roses. And some of them tunes off those first like Appetite Destruction and Usual Illusion One and Two. Those some of those tunes. Even though I haven't listened to Guns of Roses in a long time, you can't deny some of them are brilliant stuff. They're Sweet timeless. Child of Mine, November Rain. Welcome yeah, to the jungle. Timeless big yeah. rock tunes. We're welcome to the jungle. Yeah, exactly. There's some great stuff out there for them. But as I say, when it comes to Chinese democracy, I've never heard of a song from it. I've never listened to the album. And then I don't really care. And I don't think most people do now either. And I think as we wanted to introduce into Top of the Flops, we always forget, which is one of our own flops, is to ultimately say whether we both agree whether or not it was a flop. And if I can speak out of turn and speak on your behalf, I think we can categorically both agree that it was an unmitigated disaster, not just a flop, a disaster. You could say it was a Chinese spaghetti disaster. No, that doesn't work. <laughs> no, no, that doesn't work at all. You were going with like an Italian spaghetti westerner where it is. I'm like, what? No. Well, Chinese Chinese spaghetti is noodles, isn't it? Because that's where the Italians got noodle uh, spaghetti from. They stole that it from the Chinese. That is true. Yes, that is very, very true. But it still doesn't make that line work. <laughs> and I think as we are now... We're- fast approaching two and a half hours of content for people two and a half hours of us rambling on I think that's probably a good note to say our goodbyes on Daryl because after two and a half hours and I've drank two cups of tea this time and I've been sitting in the shed I am busting for a piss I am really really I am sitting with my legs I am in pain I need to go to the toilet that much so I think on that note 
It's been a tremendous PPC at home. For me, at least, I've really enjoyed it. It's taken us several attempts to do it. We are back. We are going to be doing this every week. And maybe, if we find the time, an odd little supplementary episode where we can just get Daryl to really go off on one and let him loose on the crowd, so to speak. Um, But with all that in mind, you know, obviously, everybody, remember to follow us on all social media. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just search for Pop Culture Climate. We're on all podcast platforms. Again, just search for Pop Culture Climate. You'll see that beautiful new logo that Daryl's created in this time of lockdown. He's created a logo that makes you feel like you're on the beach, you know, just to get you through those tough times. And with that in mind, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. (laughs) 